become death, destroyer of worlds. Welcome to Now Playing Podcast Review of Oppenheimer. You are the men who gave them the power to destroy themselves. Part of our Christopher Nolan movie retrospective series. Because this is the most important thing that ever happened in the history of the world. Hosted by Jacob, Stuart, and Arnie. Thanks for convening a short notice. Well, here we are. This podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. What can I tell them? As much as you like, until you feel my boot on your balls. We hope you enjoy the show. Let's go recruit some scientists. Today we're discussing Oppenheimer, starring Killian Murphy, Emily Blunt, Matt Damon, Robert Downey Jr., Florence Pugh, Josh Hartnett, Casey Affleck, Rami Malek, Kenneth Branagh, directed by Christopher Nolan. This is a podcaster of energy and paradox that not everyone can accept, Arnie. And Stuart. And this is Jacob, who's just a Barbie girl in Oppenheimer's <laughs> world. Life's fantastic when you don't have flesh to drip off your bones as you melt from radiation fallout from an atomic bomb because you're plastic. Come on, <laughs> Nolan, let's go bowling. Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> Wow, we could do this all day. Forget the father of the atomic bomb. This is the father of movie memes. Mm. You know what? According to our Twitter audience, more people would have liked us to review Barbie this weekend than Oppenheimer. So take that for what you will. I mean, Thursday night, I'm driving home from this movie and on the radio, they said AMC reported 40,000 tickets for both movies sold for people to see them on the same day. People were making this a double feature. That's strange to me. And there was pink in my audience. I actually am in Chicago right now. And so I saw them in bigger theaters than I normally do. And yeah, people had t-shirts. People were cosplaying. Let me put it this way. I feel like there's a whole lot more Barbie people that are doing Oppenheimer than Oppenheimer people doing Barbie. I'm guessing you're right because my crowd, when I went to see Oppenheimer, I'm closer to 50 than 40 and I was one of the youngest people there. Mm -hmm. I had trouble seeing Oppenheimer because I bought tickets weeks ago at a DLX theater, Dolby, big screen, not IMAX. And got good seats. Showing ended up completely sold out, including the front rows. But I was like, I have good seats. And then the day of showing, I find out through Facebook, the theater lost its air conditioning. And it's 106 Ooh. down here. Yeah. <laughs> now, that's not the worst of it. They're working on the air conditioning. But while working on the air conditioning, the fire alarm is periodically going off at the theater and all the digital projectors are set to stop showing the movie when the fire alarm goes off. So nobody chooses to keep watching the movie instead of leave the building. And so mm. now I'm stuck with a paradox of my own. Do I go to the non-air conditioned theater running the risk of the fire alarm interrupting Oppenheimer mid-nuclear explosion? Or do I go to AMC's IMAX where only the very front row is available? There's not a single seat of quality left in that theater. And honestly, if it wasn't for now playing, my option would have been see none of the above, wait for a different day to see the movie. I rolled the dice on the no air conditioned theater with the better seats and no fire alarms went off. So success. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. But you didn't see it in IMAX. No, I didn't see it in IMAX. Mm -hmm. Well, I just want to point out, this is our 12th podcast about Christopher Nolan. Three years since we did Tenet, whatever 
that theatrical release. That one was more stressful, Arnie, I gotta say. However much pain you might have gone through. Literal life or death situation going to see Tenet. Yeah, that was my first <laughs> time back in a movie theater. I remember being very distanced from my audience and feeling weird about it. Are we back at the Aviator, though? That's what I was wondering and thinking about this movie. We don't cover a lot of biopics because... Well, I don't think any of us are huge fans, but it, it depends on the subject, right? And because we traffic in a lot of franchise movies, we just don't have the opportunity that often. But Aviator, for people that don't remember, it's a Leonardo DiCaprio-Scorsese collaboration we covered a long time. Arnie lost his shit. We called it an overlong <laughs> vanity project. Jacob basically shrugged and didn't care. And I was the only one that, like, had any enthusiasm. I felt very alone in my praise in that movie. I was wondering, is this just a repeat? Should we have done Barbie because it would have just been so much easier to talk about Barbie than Oppenheimer? I mean, yeah, I, I feel like I have more excitement for Barbie than Oppenheimer because that looks like a real campy, fun film. And this looks like a real serious biopic, which I got nothing against biopics. There can be good ones. Like, I was surprised when I finally got around to seeing The Social Network because I'm like, what do I care about Lizard Man, Mark Zuckerberg? But I saw that and, and wow, that was a great film. Why did I put that one off for so long? But yeah, I feel like there's a lot of tropes. Like, there's a lot of boxes to be checked off with a biopic where they're usually not as creative like this does not look like Greta Gerwig's Barbie film as far as creativity goes and I'll be with Jacob I don't hate biopics but I've got to be predisposed to the subject matter you know I like straight out of Compton and yeah social network is one I don't think of often enough and is a great film we reviewed way back when that was new and yet Last week, we reviewed Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, the film I was most looking forward to this summer. And now we're at the film that I'm looking forward to least this summer. I said I'd pick C, none of the above for seeing Oppenheimer on opening night because of the problems. If it wasn't for now playing, I'd have picked C, none of the above, to never see Oppenheimer. Never see it? Never see it. Look at this movie. Let's check off the boxes of why this movie is not made for Arnie. <laughs> okay. First, it's a biopic. Second, it's about somebody I've never heard of. I have never heard of Oppenheimer. What? You've never heard of Oppenheimer. You're seriously never heard of Oppenheimer. I have seriously, until this movie, never heard of Oppenheimer. Wow, this is the reason I wanted to see it, because I knew about his involvement with the atomic bomb, but just not much about his life before or afterwards. Like, this is a, yeah, historical figure that I'm interested in, so that was a hook for me, but no knowledge of him at all. I will say it this way. I think the subject matter is very interesting, but the individual players I knew nothing about. Meaning, I've been to Los Alamos, and obviously we're all aware of atomic energy and bombs still living under that threat i'll go ahead and throw out i don't like movies about eggheads typically like theory of everything imitation game beautiful mind Ugh. i didn't even see beautiful mind oh don't so it's hard to dramatize scientists so that was a bias for me and i mean take it for what you will american education or just my own ignorance but i thought the atomic bomb was developed by albert einstein <laughs> So, wow. <laughs> no, he famously was against it. And then Christopher Nolan, I have a mixed track record with him. I find him mostly overblown these days. I can't think of the last film of his I loved, probably Dark Knight. Inception. Yeah, Inception came after Dark Knight. Then Inception is the last film of his I absolutely loved. I find him to be often a self-important douchebag. 
So douchebag. <laughs> You're calling Christopher Nolan a douchebag. I am. I mean, he kind of reached that level when he is trying to promote Tenet and get everyone back to theaters with that. Yes. I get some of his movies are inaccessible, and I share your lane of interest. Things like Interstellar have hurt. Dark Knight mm-hmm. Rises is where I started to cool off on him. But yeah, I mean, he's made great, great films. I don't think you should throw someone away just because you haven't liked their last decade of output. A decade of output is a good enough reason to throw somebody away. It isn't. You can still love what they did at the beginning. Yeah, but you're going to be suspect of their new stuff after a decade of films you don't like. Absolutely. And I still love Memento, and I watch The Dark Knight regularly. The, not Rises, but the actual Dark Knight. So I have loved his stuff, but this is a movie I would never see, and three hours long, I went into this with a shrug and a sigh. It's like, this is an obligation. This is my job. This is now playing. I have to watch this movie, but I'd rather be watching Barbie four times than watching this once. That was my attitude going in. And, you know, I understand that, but maybe that's why you should watch it. Like, I'm hearing you saying, I, there's so much about this I don't know. I think that's why Christopher Nolan did this now. Because that was my curiosity. I'm like, why are you hyping this Like it's an IMAX extravaganza and we're going to just be blown away like it's a Vin Diesel movie when we see the atomic cloud. Yeah, it's hilarious. I showed the trailer to my daughters because I was telling them about it and they sounded kind of interested. And so I'm like, let's watch the trailer. And it's like filmed with IMAX cameras. I'm like, this movie is people sitting in little rooms for three hours mostly. You telling me you brought your big old IMAX cameras into these rooms where you can't hear anything. It must have been hot and sweat. Like there's no way most of this was filmed with IMAX. It doesn't need to be. It would be ethically untenable, really, to depict Hiroshima like T2 Judgment Day. We don't need to be wowed as the Japanese people melt. Like, that would be so tasteless. And that was really my concern and curiosity is, like, why are we doing this now? I know it's the anniversary of the detonation, but you put a movie like this out at Christmas when you you have your Oscar contenders. You don't turn summer radioactive by detonating this next to Barbie, which is, of course, why it became the meme that it did. You know, I honestly had a theory coming in, though, because of the prestige, because it's Christopher Nolan, because all of his movies mess with time. I wondered, would this be a straight biopic or would it take a left turn and very much like Twin Peaks season three, the detonation (laughs) of the nuclear bomb create a time loop in which... (laughs) Oppenheimer then gets to relive things. I went in wondering if this would be straight. What? I mean, yeah, non-chronological is a good bet. Yeah, I went in wondering, like, how are they going to tell the story? Because like all biopics, usually we know the outcome. Like, we know he was successful. So how are you going to make this suspenseful when we know that, yes, you created a weapon of mass destruction? That was my other concern, too, was I was the one, I think, out of all of us that did the deep dive. Like, I actually drove to Independence Missouri and went to the Truman Presidential Library to look at how all the stuff that they had there. I read the 600-page nonfiction book, American Prometheus, that this is based on. I also did a PBS documentary. I also watched, did you know Hollywood has told this story before? Fat Man and Little Boy? Yes. 
I remember that movie because it came out, I think, when we were very young children, maybe in the 80s, maybe 90s. 89. I literally thought back then it was about a fat guy and a little boy. <laughs> that's what I was going to say. I remember hearing that title. I'm like, oh, that sounds like a funny movie. Fat man and little boy. A buddy cop movie. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it could have been a buddy cop movie. It was the 80s. But no, in fact, those are the two bombs that went to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I learned that later. <laughs> and they, yes, they made a movie that the focus was on Groves. Paul Newman played the Matt Damon part. Well, I say the focus was on him, but he was the star. But it's a love story. I shit you not. I watched this movie the other day and it scared me for Oppenheimer. I'm like, I hope it's nothing like this because most of it is John Cusack is a love struck scientist who falls for nurse Laura Dern and then gets radiation sickness and she has to nurse him back to health. Like, that's how they saw the wow. Trinity Project. It's so wow. dumb. Yeah. I almost want to see that now. <laughs> I'm guaranteeing you don't. It's a gorgeously <laughs> photographed movie, but just dull as dirt. It reinforced the idea, even if you cut out the stupid love story, this isn't cinematic, per se. It's dramatic. It's absolutely important when we consider what Oppenheimer provided the world and how it changed after he did what he did. But can you show anything? Again, I go back to those Egghead movies. Coming up with theories, that's just not something you can visualize. So I was concerned going in. Even with my fandom of Nolan and my respect for the subject matter, I didn't think it was going to be a good movie. And I am a science nerd. I like to get those details. I did watch some documentaries after I saw this film because I wanted those details that weren't included. But yeah, I, I wondered how, again, you're telling me you got to use IMAX cameras for these eggheads in laboratories. Like this is where I, I start worrying about Nolan's pretentiousness that he could lean into. Pretension. Yeah. Yeah, you, you bought into something that because you think the subject is important, it deserves this summer movie treatment. But I, you know what? I came around to it. Like I realized and sit, I went to this movie twice. I saw it first in Dolby Atmos in one of those theaters where they shake you, you know, like you ever done that? Oh no. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like every time he has one of those trembling moments, I'm also shaking in my chair. <laughs> And then, like, I went again because I heard, you know, he shot it on film. The end stinger is, we shot this on film. It was finished on film, so I will watch it on film. It doesn't need to be on film. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, shoot it in whatever format you want to. I, I don't know unless you have a side-by-side. -side. I saw some grain, and I already saw, because projectionists have largely lost their jobs. So, like, I already saw some scratches, on, <laughs> even though it was the second day in 70-millimeter projection. No one knows how to handle it, those popcorn sellers yeah yeah nobody knows how to put it string it up so it was already getting some damage but uh, that was the main difference between those two but i will say this i had an epiphany and sitting there in this heat of summer sweltering coming in from the chicago heat and realizing that i don't think nolan did want us to be wowed again we'll get into it when we talk about this movie this isn't meant to blow us away when the bomb goes off he wanted the biggest pulpit, right? Like, he wanted to scare the shit out of people. So he put a movie out at a time when most people go to the movies, and he made it as big as he could so that he could get, I think, people like Arnie and people like Barbie to, like, come in and remember that this is the world. 
I mean, we are still living under this threat. It's still relevant. I remember, what was it, about a year ago when the whole thing with Ukraine started and Putin's threatening to push the button if anyone invades him. And my daughters, they're like, we're scared. Like, we're going to die a nuclear holocaust. I'm like, oh, welcome to my childhood. This is the fear I grew up with. Are people scared of nuclear attack anymore? I feel like I did grow up in that way. It was the post-duck and cover kind of education. But once the Cold War ended and we had all these action movies about rogue nukes and, you know, Vin Diesel surfing on nuclear clouds or whatever, you know, I just feel like it's lost its power to shock and scare. And I think that's what Nolan is trying to do by releasing it now. But let's talk about it, Arnie. You got the plot? Oppenheimer stars Killian Murphy as the eponymous quantum physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer. The film tracks his adult life from the 1920s through the late 1940s. We watch as Oppenheimer studies quantum physics abroad at Oxford. He then returns to the States and becomes a physics professor at Berkeley, which is the role he held when World War II began with the Nazi invasion of Poland. We see Oppenheimer's personal life. A left-leaning liberal, he dabbles in communist politics. He also has a toxic relationship with communist Gene Tatlock, played by Florence Pugh. But he ends up impregnating and marrying a biologist named Kitty, played by Emily Blunt, and the two eventually have two children together. When news reaches the states that European scientists have split the atom, Oppenheimer realizes the possibility of that new technology being used to create a super bomb. And, indeed, the U.S. military comes knocking on Oppenheimer's door in the form of General Leslie Groves, played by Matt Damon. Groves hires Oppenheimer to lead a group of the Allied side's best scientists to create an atomic bomb. They set up a working base in Los Alamos, New Mexico. But someone at the base is a spy, feeding Russia progress reports on the new American weapon. Eventually, the scientists create the bomb and successfully detonate the world's first nuclear explosion. Having created two more bombs, General Groves takes them to the military, where they'll be dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Oppenheimer is hailed a hero for ending the war, despite all the civilian casualties the bombs caused. After the explosions, Oppenheimer becomes critical of the nuclear arms race and the government's insistence on creating an even bigger hydrogen bomb. Oppenheimer tries to convince President Truman to not escalate what will become a global arms race, and he goes public with those opinions. As a result, the physicist is excised from government, mostly at the hands of Louis Strauss, played by Robert Downey Jr., straws. Much of the film is told in retrospect from the perspective of Oppenheimer in a hearing to retain his clearance on the Atomic Energy Commission, a clearance that is revoked thanks in no part to Strauss acting behind the scenes. But this orchestration backfires for Strauss when he goes in front of the Senate to be confirmed for a cabinet position. Scientist David Hill, played by Rami Malek, gives a scathing speech in front of Congress exposing Strauss's betrayal of Oppenheimer. This causes Strauss to lose his cabinet position nomination. And we end seeing Oppenheimer talking with Albert Einstein, wondering if his invention will destroy the world as credits roll. Now, you did a good job, I think, of taking a very dense, complicated, non-chronological movie. There's about 30 characters you left out. <laughs> and giving us the basic chronological facts of it all. But I'm going to just want to preface everything by saying, yes, this is a Christopher Nolan movie. He's not going to look at things non-chronologically. And it's, I think... For anyone going to be a challenge in one viewing to absorb this movie, I will give a helpful tip. There is one thing that I always do. I feel like great directors, when they make complicated, intricate works, they all subscribe to the same idea. You have to reduce your movie 
to an opening image. And one place to start always on a movie that's hard to talk about is what is the first shot? And here we see ripples, chain reactions, water, droplets in a pool. It is, in some ways, defines Oppenheimer, right? He's not the originator of all of this. Einstein got the ball rolling. Other people would make the hydrogen bomb. He is not so much the creator of our mass destruction as the center of a ripple effect. And we start with a quote about Prometheus giving fire to man. And for this, he was chained to a rock and tortured for eternity, for those who don't remember their Greek myth. Yeah, do you remember that one? They eat his liver. That was always, that always stuck with me. Yes. <laughs> it would grow back and then be eaten again by birds. This is helpful if you don't know who Prometheus is. I, I think, I don't know an artistic director, but I think a good director, if you're trying to mass sell something, yes, you, you want to bring in maybe these more unfamiliar elements and then explain them to some extent. So yeah, Prometheus, if you don't know who he is, he got fire, he got punished for it, like perfect symbol. And then as we get into the mechanics of the film, you talk about the way he messes with time. He's going to have two distinct splits. There's going to be a fission section and a fusion section. There's not a lot of science in this film. I feel if you like name your sections, these two things, at least tell me what those are. Like I know one is about bringing things together, like atoms together. So I assume the other one was about splitting them, especially because that's the atomic bomb. And so I'm looking for those themes, but but I got to imagine a, a lot of people don't understand these. I barely understand them. And like, yeah, if you're going to frame your story this way, give me a little bit of understanding. So I'm not like trying to guess. Why are you doing this for three hours? And I am struggling to remember my high school science classes where we discussed fission and fusion. <laughs> I knew it once. I think you're right about fission splitting it apart, fusion bringing it together. And then also, though, those titles don't come back, but one of them is filmed in color and the other one in black and white. Yeah, uh, let me help you out at seeing it in two viewings. I'm not a scientist. I'll be like Robert Downey Jr. I'm more like a shoe salesman that's stumbling into a scientific world. I don't know fission and fusion. I do think one is about splitting and maybe one is about implosion. What we are given is two different stories of two different men that are similar. We have two Jewish men working with atomic energy who are being put on trial. Well, technically it's not a trial, but they are being judged by a panel. And we will see how they are similar and how they are connected. Yes, the movie cleverly decides to call that fusion and fission. I don't know what that means. But I do think it's helpful to have two different film stocks if we're going to go back and forth. Oh, for sure. Yes. Like, you need to know where you are, and knowing that Robert Downey Jr. is the man in the shadows, thus he will always be in black and white, and Oppenheimer is the man that gave us the fire and will, you know, is identified as the light. We will have his stuff in color. Symbolically, that helps. And I agree, like, the interesting stuff, the atomic bomb explosion, all that you want in color, but it is counterintuitive. Like, I look at black and white, I think that's older just visually in mm -hmm. color, but it is reversed here. Well, I think confusion is a part of the game. I mean, Nolan likes mysteries. Oh, is it? Because I'm confused a lot. <laughs> no, no, I, I think, you know, again, Memento, we're not always supposed to know what's going on. He likes to have us always reaching out into the darkness. And again, this movie, I want to really stress that. This movie would be really dull if they said, let's just tell it in the order that it happened. That is not an interesting story. By setting it as two different people who are fused together in this weird way you have to untangle is a compelling mystery for me. And I wonder, 
I already knew, but I wonder in watching this first viewing with less information, would you know that Robert Downey Jr.'s, I will call him Straws, he pretentiously, you know, calls himself Straws instead of Strauss, would you know he's the villain? I mean, he's right here at the beginning saying, I'm going to be crucified in my hearing for what people think I did to Oppenheimer, but I'm innocent of that. Yeah, I didn't realize he was the villain or that this movie would have a villain until the third hour of this film. For the first two hours, I take this as he is a partial narrator. Can you tell me? And the film really doesn't give a lot of information. Who is Strauss? What is his role in government? And how does he entirely relate to this? Because when he becomes the puppet master behind the curtain, I am really confused as to this guy, because he's not in a lot of the film. Well, he is. He's not in a lot of Oppenheimer's story. How about that? He's in a lot of the film because it's non-chronological and we will cut back to him in ways that might be perplexing, but that show you that his trial is a lot like Oppenheimer's trial. Because what we're seeing concurrently is that Oppenheimer, in the same decade, in the 50s, in the Eisenhower era, is having to answer for what he did. At the same time, seemingly, although it's separated by a few years, that Robert Downey Jr. Strauss is having to answer those same questions. And it seems like maybe Oppenheimer is the villain because he had communist leanings, because he maybe didn't keep good security. We'll talk all about that. That's most of the movie. But what we're hearing is that Downey Strauss is going to be punished for what happens in Oppenheimer's trial. And so who is Strauss? He is the liaisons for Princeton. He's responsible for bringing Oppenheimer to Princeton after the detonation. And he was the head of the Atomic Energy Commission. But, and this is crucial, it's, it's one of the funny bits that Downey gets to play with, but he's really the son of a shoe salesman. And he comes, in Oppenheimer's words, from a lowly background and doesn't know the science. So he's operating in a world of eggheads that he believes has contempt for him. Which is standard for like politicians in Congress, like they're in charge of science committees and they don't know anything about it. But you talk about confusion and, and maybe that being part of the story. I agree. Like, I don't want this to be a timeline story. I want drama in there. I want suspense. So I appreciate that Nolan, and maybe this is how the book is constructed. I don't know, but he does create a mystery. I need some kind of mystery to carry me through three hours. And so the fact that, yeah, Oppenheimer, is being questioned by the government. I'm like, dude, you guys you guys wanted to bomb Japan. Like, why are you trying to hold him accountable for this now? So there's a good mystery, something, a good hook. And then you get this scene early on with Strauss meeting Einstein after Oppenheimer says something to Einstein and Einstein blows Strauss off and he's like, what did you tell him? I'm like, okay, there's a couple good hooks, a couple good mysteries that you could slowly reveal through this next three hours. So yeah, I, I like that Nolan has found a way to make me want to sit here for three hours. And yeah, so there is some confusion because what are people's alliances and all that, that it's a good hook that gets me interested fairly quickly in this film. And I want to underline that again, as someone that read the book that all of this was based on it, it was a Pulitzer Prize winner from 2006 and it's dense and it's very fact-based and it's wanting to give you all of the information. Guess what? It's really hard to get get through. 
it's really a long sit and reading about someone's childhood and all of that, you know, you're bored by the time you get to Trinity. So here you need to create immediate connection, immediate excitement and mystery. Nolan deserves super props for how he has constructed the screenplay out of that book. He has done a masterful writing job. But I will say this opening is confusing for me because we are yeah. jumping between multiple different periods in time. We're seeing Oppenheimer in a type of hearing that feels like a trial. We're seeing Strauss in his hearing that feels like a trial in black and white. And we're seeing Oppenheimer as a young man. It is throwing you into the deep end of the pool here in a way that could be off-putting for me I'm leaning forward, not leaning back. I'm getting interested to try and be a proactive viewer who is going to be engaged and try to figure out when everything is being told to me as compared to the person who was sitting next to me in the theater, a complete stranger, who about 15 minutes in began to snore rather loudly. <laughs> Oh, wow. I, I will honestly say I was super impressed with both my crowds. They never pulled out their phone. I didn't see a lot of people getting up for bathroom breaks. I feel like the audience was with me and being hooked. But I agree with you. People are going to be on different levels of understanding. And I think Nolan likes playing that game. Yeah, he is not making a film for everyone. That is never Nolan's intent, I think. I think he's more artist than that. But he likes to market them that way. Yeah, that's true. Well, he has to pay for it. He has, I mean, you know, this is an expensive proposition. So, yeah, he has to sell it. And thank God for Barbie, right? I mean, it's an absolute win for Warner Brothers. It doesn't matter which one you pick. They're profiting. Oppenheimer's not a Warner Brothers thing. It's not? No. Warner Brothers is trying to bomb Nolan this weekend because Nolan called out Warner Brothers for putting their films on streaming instead of in theaters and said, you're seeing very expensive television programming. And so Nolan has left Warner Brothers, who's made most or all of his films, oh, okay. and gone to Universal. And Universal is making this, and Warner is being a little bit petty by releasing Barbie the same weekend. They're saving movie theaters because of that move, in my opinion. And apparently theater owners even pleaded with Warner, let's not do this, let's not split audiences like this. And Warner just stuck their stick in the sand and said no. So this actually feels like a petty rivalry between one of America's biggest directors and one of America's biggest film studios. This is an Oppenheimer-Strauss situation. Yeah, I feel that. That's cool. Anyway, I have a helpful tip in case you are swirling around, kind of like our main character, looking at puddles of water and seeing, you know, explosions and particulate and not knowing what the hell to do. The movie is mostly structured around questions about character. And the first question that I hear, and the way that it starts to follow a more chronological flow, is why did you study abroad? If Oppenheimer is standing on trial for how he might be connected to Russia and communism, their first suspicion is, as a young man in your 20s, in the 1920s, 
Instead of staying in America, you went to Europe and that was where you got your education. Why? I do love to call him back to the aviator. One of the things I did love about that film, I always like when someone has to stand up to the government, like in a hearing or a trial, like that's always fun. So yeah, you get this thing. Why did you go study abroad? Berkeley has one of the best quantum physics labs there is. And he's like, yeah, because I built it because I studied abroad. Like, <laughs> I like that line. Yeah, I did like that one. I like it because it's funny. But it also tells you something about Oppenheimer. He's a snob, right? Yes. And, and that will be confirmed later when his brother, who is a communist, Oppenheimer never does join the party, but his brother, like, marries a waitress. He's like, you let that waitress ruin your career because she made you a card-carrying communist. You're never going to be able to work with me in the labs. You're never going to be able to do what I can do. And so one, one thing I think that's good, a mark of quality, I think, in biopics is when we don't lionize, when we don't say that the person that did what they did is so great all the time and, and make them a hero. Do they ever? Always. Usually in biopics, I go back to what you said about the aviator. He was a genius. But he was an asshole. Very rarely do I see them lionized. Yeah, but it's it's the VH1 behind the music formula. Yes, they have their downfall, but the ending is like, but they came back and they're great and everyone loves them and everything they did was amazing. Yeah, usually it's just drugs, like The Doors. I know you love that movie, Arnie, but like that movie lionizes Jim Morrison. Yeah, that's true. That one does. Well, mostly. He's also an abusive asshole to Meg Ryan. But. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. Usually it'll do both and it'll be about which emphasis do we place? Do we discredit them completely or do we say that they're a god? And this movie, I think, walks a very good line about showing that he's just a ripple in a pond. He is one element of a larger debate and discussion. And I think one thing this film does successfully, because three hours, a lot of characters, I'm going to lose things as this film goes on, but like early impressions that it's making on me that to help carry me through this story is, you know, Oppenheimer... One of my big questions is like, how does he feel about the atomic bomb being used and, you know, blowing up two cities in Japan and killing thousands of people and this chain reaction? Like, how does he deal with that? And we do see early on, like his character is that he's about theory. He's a scientist about theory. When we go back and see him in at Oxford, like he's messing up. He can't do the practicals. They're going to drive that point home. He's bad at math. Yeah, he is a theorist. Einstein's later like, the only thing we have in common is that you and I hate math. Yeah, which to the layman is great. Like, scientists don't like math. Like, math mm -hmm. is objective and absolute. And like, no, it's actually not when you get into these very high-level theoretical-based studies. Bohr's actually explains it well. So yeah, he's abroad and he's meeting people. And one of them is Kenneth Branagh, Niels Bohr. And that's sort you can see he's the idol. And he's the idol in part because he proved Einstein was wrong. So like, he inherited the mantle of cool and opportunity higher will it take that crown from him of course but yeah Bohr basically says you don't need to be able to read music you need to be able to hear it and I just want to compliment technically what we have a lot is collage and we will have orchestras tuning up there's a lot of violin I feel like there's a Mount Olympus illusion you know we'll see mountains and clouds and all that thinking about Prometheus and how a mortal went up to the Mount Olympus and brought down the fire all of this stuff just as MTV montage, I think, is very visually stimulating. You bring up the music and collage and montage. I agree. And 
it starts to grate. My biggest complaint is not the notes of the score, not the way the score is played, but the amount. It never stops. There is maybe three minutes total of this three-hour film where there's no score playing. And that, for me, like trying to articulate why this bothers me sounds weird because it's not like something that's on the forefront of my mind, but when I'm presented it in a film, score, it emphasizes moments. It tells me what is the emotion of this scene? Is this scene important or is this a montage where like I just am supposed to get the gist of it? And so when you have score swelling violins and strings in every scene almost, I'm like, is this important? Can I just move on to the next scene? Like where we're going to slow down a little bit? Like it becomes a problem for me trying to tonally figure out like how am I supposed to be reacting because that score never stops. And I, again, not a problem with the notes being played. It's the amount. Be a technician, be an artist. You edit Nolan. Like you don't need this much violin playing through the whole movie. In defense, it's not always score, but there is always noise. Now it's often score. Sometimes it's this train track sounding like sound or people stomping their feet. No, I'm not counting that stuff. I'm counting the score. It is almost always score. (laughs) Can I offer something? I feel like the score, sometimes it is music and sometimes it is tuning up. Sometimes it's just like a violinist like, I think if you listen to it. I did. There are times when you see the characters trying to formulate and when it's working for them, it becomes music. Here's the thing. You already have Killian Murphy, Robert Downey Jr., Emily Blunt, like just killing it with acting. Killian Murphy's got those baby blues, like that communicates so much more than swelling strings. Like give me some moments to reflect on what the actor's doing instead of violins constantly blaring in my ear. But the thing is, this whole movie is really trying to cover so much ground. You tell me this book is 600 pages, although it covers more of Oppenheimer's life than this movie does, but it's trying to cover so much ground that, yes, it does feel like a three-hour montage. We're hopping between times and everything. If we didn't have that music, this film would be chaos. I find that the music and the sound in the background helps provide a coherence but it is going to be completely subjective whether or not you can roll with a three-hour montage. And to be honest, I'm riding that line. I was going with the montage at the beginning. I'm like, you got to jump me into the deep end. You've got to introduce me to who he is. You got to get me over to Oxford and do all of this really quickly. Fine. But when we're an hour into it and I realize it hasn't slowed down, I'm like, this film is going to be and is a little exhausting. I agree. Like, I, it, three hours of the same experience, you get numb to it, you get exhausted by it, that's asking a lot, and I would say edit. Like, become an editor and, and cut some things out. Talking about, like, the, the use of score specifically throughout this film. Well, I'll, I'll stand alone and say I think this movie is edited superbly. I think the sound design is superb. I think everything is great. I'll just go ahead and preview. I'm super impressed with this movie. I want to just talk about the things that we learn while he's in Europe, since that's sort of where the committee is at with exploring him. The poisoning has always been apocryphal. I looked this up, yeah. (laughs) We're not sure, and I heard it. I thought I heard it. You know, he was kind of an incel. The thing is that he couldn't connect with women. And there was a story about how one of his friends came up and said, hey, I'm going to get engaged. And he beat the shit out of him. Like, just because, like, how dare you have a woman and I don't? Wow. I thought that he poisoned the apple to kill a female tutor. That was the way I remembered it. Now, keep in mind, I crammed all of this information in pretty fast. I might have gotten that detail wrong. But it was at a time when he had a lot of issues with women. And I will offer this. 
this movie dramatizes his guilt as dead women. That will be the image that plays throughout. That he, It ends up being this kind of snotty teacher that wouldn't let him go to the Niels Bohr lecture. I think they changed history so that they could just get to Niels Bohr and see how Niels Bohr is influential to Oppenheimer. Yeah, and the fact that he was actually almost kicked out of Oxford for this, but he's got money. He comes from money. He's got rich parents and they bought his way to stay in and not be arrested. Like, yeah, they, they gloss over a lot of the privilege that got him to where he was. Oh, yeah. No, he definitely came from privilege and he had been lecturing. I mean, another interesting little childhood detail we're not going to see. He was by seven years old, like educating fully grown people on science. He was a genius in that way. Like he grasped things very quickly and in lots of subjects, like he was really good at poetry. Like we don't even talk about that. He ends up being very bullied for that. Like you can say he's privileged, but the interesting thing about him is that other kids hated him and beat the shit out of him. And yet he would never fight. He would never speak up. And I think you see that tension later in his marriage. But while he's traveling around here, yeah, maybe he poisoned this teacher. Maybe he didn't. He meets Heisenberg, who is a student of Niels Bohr. Yeah, not Walter White from Breaking Bad, just for maybe our younger fans. Heisenberg <laughs> takes a very different meaning these days. Oh, okay. All right. You're educating me. But no, Heisenberg principle, I know that's something to do with science. I don't know science. But yeah, he's a big wig, will be a big wig, but he's a German. I, I like the way that it's framed. The committee's obviously looking at this as like, what did you learn from him? What did you, you know, like, what is your affiliation? And the truth is they look like they could have been friends. This guy is like, let's publish together. Let's work together. It's politics that will keep them apart. That Heisenberg goes to work for the Nazis and Oppenheimer obviously comes to America and they work on the same project separately. Yeah, I think is an interesting turn. Yeah, I wish there was more of him in it. I know this film is called Oppenheimer, but being introduced to him here becomes a very intriguing moment that I thought we'd find more of this character. Well, you never met him again. I mean, that's the the thing. It's like, we never met again, but you could say our paths crossed is kind of the way he puts it, which is an understatement to say the least. And there's a lot about this that's wry and very Nolan, maybe understated in a point that people don't get the jokes. I was laughing a lot in this movie, but I, I felt alone in that. This is also where we meet his Jewish consciousness, that Oppenheimer is a Jew. We will, in that scene with... Robert Downey Jr., that early one with Einstein by the lake, he has that great line. You can pronounce it Oppenheimer or Oppenheimer, and people always know I'm Jewish, which was also a way of telling straws, stop being straws and just be Strauss, right? You know, like, don't hide who you are. Don't be in the shadows. But this is where on the train he meets Robbie, his uh, New York Jew friend. Is he a scientist? He's yes. going to be hanging around a lot, but he doesn't seem as... Bright. He doesn't seem like he's in the inner circle. And I think that's a, a choice Nolan makes because he wants you to look at him differently than the other scientists. He does come on the project. They have a scene much later where Robbie's like, I don't think I can do this. You know, you drop a bomb and it falls on the innocent as well as the guilty. I don't really want to be involved in something like this. And other people say that too. Niels Bohr says that and he doesn't work on the project. But Robbie does work on the project because he's a Jew. And, you know, Oppenheimer has, I think, the best argument for making the bomb. Maybe we're not responsible enough for having the bomb, but I damn well sure know that Nazis aren't either. And we have to beat them. 
We have to create the bomb to prevent them from using it first. And so every time you see Robbie, I think he's really there to provide that Jewish perspective. It allows Oppenheimer to connect with that heritage, his people, and think in that way. But in the end, he comes back to America. He tells the committee, if, if you were worried of what I might be passing along or what I might be learning, I did come back to America and, you know, I had a ranch in New Mexico, but I went to work at Berkeley. It's really interesting to think he could have been Stephen Hawking. Like, he wanted to just work on black holes. I didn't know he worked on black holes. I did not know this part. Yeah. Oh, huge stuff. He's loved for that stuff. And long before astronomers could prove any of what he was talking about, you know, all his stuff is theory. He basically knew about black holes before astronomers did. And that could have been his whole career. Had there not been World War II, I think that he would have been a genius. He would have been easier to love, right? We would have been able to celebrate his accomplishments independent of real world tragedy. Yeah, you don't want to be the father of the A-bomb. Like, not a good title. (laughs) You see that. I mean, I think we wrestle with that in the movie. But again, what happens? We publish a paper on black holes same day Hitler invades Poland. So nobody... Is talking about us. This is not work that matters. You know, you can see he wants the new physics. I don't want to be Einstein. I don't want to live in the past. I want to be progressive. So this is the way, right? The way to have an impact is to go to work for the government. And it's interesting, politics... This is the next question for the committee of like, are you affiliated with the Communist Party? This is a big reason as to whether he can come on to the bomb project or not. I do wonder, as we get into this section of the film, does Nolan like regret putting so much pro-labor, pro-union stuff in here? Look, I'm they're all for it. But the happenstance that a strike happens just as this film's coming out, the actors (laughs) can't promote it. Like, I did think there is a funny irony going on. Oh, there is. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I forget that pre-World War II, communism wasn't the red scare that it would become post-World War II. It wasn't necessarily embraced, but it wasn't looked at as demonic. No, no, no. This is super important. I'm so grateful for the books about this. There is a difference between American socialism and communism and what was happening in Russia. And you have to connect it to the Depression. In the 30s, people were out of work in mass. The government had failed them, and it was socialized programs that got our country back together. It may sound un-American, but socialism kind of fucking saved us. Yeah, at least the welfare status kept us limping along as some kind of quasi-capitalist economy. But one of the biggest gaps in American education is the workers' movement, the labor movement, especially Mm. of the 30s and even before that. Like, a lot of people only work five days a week because of the labor movement. You didn't work in a coal mine at 12 because of the labor movement. And and so I like that all this stuff because, yeah, now it gets wrapped up with communism and socialism. And it meant something very different. And it means like there's still unions going on. We know about that because we're all interested in films like they're they're working for rights, working to get workers treated fairly. I I don't think that is uh, Leninism. And I just want to say that this movie, a lot of it is operating in this brief window that is hard to imagine ever being open. It never was in my lifetime. But we were friends with Russia. We did not have grievance with Russia. They were not an enemy. Mm hmm. Yeah. And it's strange, though, because. They would ally themselves with Germany and thus become an enemy and then become a friend again when Germany attacks them. So it's a very strange history. They never allied. Just to be technical, they agreed to look the other way. Uh, They were complicit. They were going to not care that Hitler was invading Poland and other countries. Just don't mess with us. 
But, you know, anyway, yes, to all of this, Oppenheimer, as far as I can tell, never was a communist. It's never been proven that he ever joined the party. And his brother did. And you see the way that this movie dramatizes it, that that's partly why Robert never wanted Frank to marry Jackie, because Jackie was the woman that got his brother ruined. He, you see him throughout the movie trying to bring Frank onto the project, and nobody ever will because he is a card-carrying commie. But Oppenheimer's going to have a relationship with a literal card-carrying <laughs> commie. Florence Pugh is in here. I did not recognize her with black hair, and it looked like her face was a little thinner. I just did not recognize her as Jean Tatlock. It's funny, because it took me a while to recognize Robert Downey Jr., but I did get her right away. I'm like, oh, okay, that's Florence Pugh. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we got Iron Man and the new Black Widow in here. <laughs> but just overall, while I'm talking about that, most of these actors fall into their roles for me. I don't see Killian Murphy. I see Oppenheimer. I don't see Florence Pugh. I see Gene Tatlock. The only one I can't get past, and it's because he's Iron Man, is Robert Downey Jr., where I'm just <laughs> like, wow, he looks so old. Is that makeup, or did he really age a lot since he was an Iron Man in 08? But no, the actors here are phenomenal, and I forget who they are. And one of my big questions, like the movie better answer this for me. And, and this is serious. I know Oppenheimer's famous quote that he's known for. I am become death. What's with the grammar of that? Like, why can't you just say I am death? Like, I want the answer. And now I am become death. I <laughs> Yes. Yes. And we get that. Apparently he wanted to get laid by Florence Pugh. That's why he said that. I, You know, I saw the first night with my brother and he was like, that's the one moment, man, where they overstepped. Like, that was the one time where you roll your eyes that like, okay, in the middle of screwing a woman, she's yeah. going to go to your bookcase and demand you translate Sanskrit. Read this dead language for me. <laughs> <laughs> and it just happens to be the paragraph yeah. you're later going to read to the world. What happens, just to help folks out, Oppenheimer is asked many, many years later, the 60s, to talk about the effect of the atomic bomb. And he reads that passage. And so it has always been linked to him that, you know, is he the destroyer of the world? You know, whatever. He embraced that in that moment. But here they're trying to say, I think the reason why Nolan put it in this moment is this is his first victim. That Oppenheimer feels responsible for killing so many. His first kill is this woman that he neglects. Who, you know, like they hit it off and most of the time she wants him. Now she is mentally deranged and I think this movie makes that look quirky. In truth, I think she truly had some severe mental illness and I don't think she killed herself because of Oppenheimer. But this movie kind of sells it that way. That in the end, she will die because he wasn't there for her. Do you feel, because so much of this is based on Oppenheimer was caught up in his head and theory. And that that's what he was obsessed with. And yet at times he makes very practical decisions like with Jean and not getting in that relationship with her. That feels like he knows that's bad because she is a communist. She is maybe a little crazy. So it, it's this weird, like, is he caught up in his? head or is he capable of making very rational decisions no i get what you say and i here's what i think and it really attracts very well it's the it's the gift that nolan gives us because i think oppenheimer can look like a very confusing person that's why he's on trial you said this one year and then you said this another year but he believes 
and quantum theory, right? He believes that paradox exists, that you can hold two different ideas that are opposed to each other at the same time. He doesn't want to commit. In the end, we see him very much against the idea of committing to one person, one ideology, one thing. Again, I want to even stress, he wasn't even just a scientist. He was a poet. He you know, liked to ride horseback, and he was good at all of it. So he was someone that deeply believed you just, just don't get stuck. Don't get stuck in one way of being. And that she couldn't stand that. She couldn't stand the way that he drops in and out of her life. She saw that as a power move. And this movie tells us it drove her to kill herself. Now, another dramatic flourish. They do it because I mentioned earlier water imagery is so important in this movie. I don't know how, even taking drugs, how you could hold your head in the tub and die. <laughs> yeah, unless you just pass out and your head's under there. <laughs> I mean, I think even your body would like spasm and, and like pull you out of it. No, I mean, isn't this what happened to Whitney Houston? She took some drugs in the bathtub and fell asleep and drowned. Mm, you're right. You're right. There it is. Another biopic. You're right. <laughs> Okay, so yes, because we have Whitney Houston, we know that this is possible, <laughs> but it seems a little bit fanciful. She hung herself. The real Jean just hung herself. But here we see that ultimately they, they have one more dalliance after he's created, you know, Los Alamos. But for the most part, because she couldn't have him, she is going to kill herself. And that becomes the first of many deaths, much blood on Oppenheimer's hands. It's also worth pointing out he leaves gene for another woman kitty and he kind of commits i mean he marries her she got pregnant she was married to another guy and so at that time he's kind of stuck right like she trapped him and now they're together but it's an unhappy union and i'm curious to know how you take emily blunt's kitty i never understand why she stays with them when it gets real bad that baby's always crying because it's said this is like her third or fourth marriage like she hops around mm -hmm. and she had been with a communist he actually died for the cause he went and fought in the spanish civil war and with the reds and died so like she probably did have a card later it'll be asked can we see your card she probably had one she said like 18 years ago she was one yeah but i think losing a husband to a cause hurt her bad enough to turn against that cause. I think she's sincere in saying, I left that party in 1936. But yeah, I think one thing that the literature I read helps me contextualize Kitty is that she was brilliant. She was a biologist. She could have gone and had her own career. And by being the wife of Oppenheimer, she couldn't have any of that. She became a housewife instead. And I think that she deeply resented it. I mean, you see her just descend into alcoholism because she doesn't want to take care of that baby. She doesn't want to be a mom. I'm curious, Jacob, did you get all of that that Stuart just said from the movie? Because I got that she was an alcoholic and a bad mother and didn't like being a stay-at-home mom, but I can't say on one viewing that I really caught the whole she was upset because she wanted to have a career as a biologist and things like that. I No, it's not there. It's not in the movie. It's not. No, it's not. Because, yeah, my opinion of her, she's going to have a big heroic moment in the third hour of this film. But for most of this film, I'm like, why are you with this woman? She's jumping from man to man. She's an alcoholic, like drinking around the kids. Like, not that Oppenheimer's like much better, but yeah, they, they didn't portray her heroically, I don't think. Definitely not. 
you come away with kind of a bad view of her. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that he stayed with her, I remember him saying something about having a first wife and a second wife. I thought this was going to be the first wife and that a more stable wife would come in later in his life. But no, it's going to be Emily Blunt the whole time. Yeah, the fact that they send their kid away to go live, I think, with his brother for a while, like when it's a baby, like, oof, like not good parents. Okay, the worst story not in this movie that I read, it's totally chilling, was that it was true that neither one of them wanted to be parents you know they were preoccupied and then one became an alcoholic which just means you're not available but yes it was oppenheimer in order to help you like killian murphy in this movie they don't show this scene they make it seem like he asked his friend chevalier can you babysit okay so that wasn't his brother it was just a friend he sends him off with no no he went to a woman that had lost a child and was in postpartum depression and said, would you take care of, you know, my son? And she's like, sure. He's like, and you know, you could just keep him. Like, because I could never love him. I could never love that child. And they were going to just give away their child. I have to ask, Stuart, because you read this book, you you did the deep dive. And I know this is kind of a, a modern trend, but it did come across as I was watching this, the thought, neurodivergency, the, the way Oppenheimer acts, like the fact that you'd be willing to just be like, hey, can you take care of this kid? Or I just think about theory. I'm not thinking about the hundreds of thousands of people that are going to die from these bombs. Like that does feel like a struggle for him to connect. And I did wonder, like, I mean, he's a brilliant scientist. I, I'm sure there's neurodivergency involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a good question. It was one when I was reading, I definitely was like, is it diagnosable? You know, he's somewhere on the spectrum. For sure. But I wouldn't say autism because he was so flirty, because he did have so many relationships, and he ended up getting good with people. I think we see some of that. When he opens that lab in Berkeley, it starts with one student, but by the end, he's got a thriving throng of kids around him, and they're, they're fans. Like, they want to be like Oppenheimer and he's actually good at lecture and will like learn Dutch just to lecture when he's <laughs> over there in Amsterdam. And I know Nolan's telling me that, that when Oppenheimer gets recruited, it's because he's a great manager. He, he could get people to work together. Did you guys feel that during these scenes? Like I, I see that Nolan's telling me that, that like, yeah, he's getting the unions put together with the students and the, the different labs. And like, there's more students in his classes, his lectures. Killian Murphy's great, like, I, good performance. I just, I don't know if I see that, that spark of that would draw people to him in this film. I think people are drawn to him. I would question the words good manager. Think of him again as a ripple. He is in the middle of all of this. He'll write on the board, hey, let's have a, a meeting about unionizing. You know, we'll get the faculty, uh, you know, to socialize. But I don't think... He was good at organizing. I don't think he was good at staying present. And I think, again, the neglect that he showed his women. The, the idea that he can commit to a theory that's paradoxical. It helped him that he was this way. But it also, I think, means that like he's frustratingly not available uh, to some people when they need him as well. I think that he comes off as a very magnetic scientist because of his brain more than personal charisma. 
And I think that that's what it takes to be a rock star in the physics community. Not that I'm in the physics community, but... Yeah, if it's about your brain, though, I don't want this to be a science lecture, even though I do like that stuff. I'm not good at science, but I like learning about it. But yeah, there's not a lot of science here. Like, even when they get to putting together the A-bomb, they're going to use some marbles to teach you something, but I don't feel like I really understand the process. And so what attracted people to this guy as a scientist? Again, I see it. I just, I don't feel it with how Nolan portrays it. I mean, it's a, it's one of the questions the committee is asking. If this guy was such a commie, why the hell was he even brought into this project? His lab, which is theoretical, is right next to the experimenters, which is run by Josh Hartnett. And Josh Hartnett basically tells him, look, they're coming to me for this A-bomb project, and if you want to be on it, you're going to have to stop unionizing. And he does. He makes that calculation to come on board because, again, he wants to do something that matters. But really, ultimately, the, the fact that he's the head of the project is because of Matt Damon. This is where we bring in Groves and ask the question, what were you thinking? And I do think they have a, a really fun tete-a-tete when they first sit down. And it's like, some people said you couldn't run a hamburger stand. You know, like some people would want, you know, you not to talk to your underlings that way. Hamburger stands are hard to run. I mean, I, I've worked at a hamburger stand. They're busy. It's stressful. It's not easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're not a general. Well, they'll make me one for this. <laughs> you think they're going to give you a Nobel Prize for building an A-bomb? Well, Alfred Nobel invented dynamite. I'm just, again, I think this movie's kind of funny. If you just like listen to what's going on here, I know that the subject matter is stark, but I think Nolan has injected wit that if you listen to these eggheads, they're kind of funny. And for me, turn off the soundtrack, turn off that score. So yes, that would draw attention to the lines. I, I'd be leaning into them more. The fact that music's playing, I'm like, okay, is this the, the meat cute for these characters before we get down to the serious stuff? That's all I'm saying about this score that constantly plays. It makes it difficult to determine what is important for me. I still think that without the score, we'd have just these choppy scenes. The score is the glue that holds this together. This is like a photo album and you have to have photo pages with the glue to keep them in an order. But it is at about the one hour mark that Matt Damon comes in. And so we've had an hour of Oppenheimer pre-Los Alamos. And then at the one hour mark, we're going to have an hour of Los Alamos. I was checking my watch every once in a while, just curious how the pacing was going. I wasn't feeling the length. I got to say that. And on a three hour film, sometimes you can really feel that length. I didn't feel the length, but... It's a third of the film is the commie years and the Florence Pugh years. And then a third of the film is going to be how we built a bomb. Yeah, which is why we came here, right? Like, that's the one thing you'll know. You may not know about, you know, communist prosecution. You may not care about early life. I know I don't. But yeah, we're definitely here to know how did he grab the fire from the gods? How did he pull this thing off? This guy that, yeah, I might have scientific magnetism who can get people excited with his ideas. How is he actually going to lead this team connected with the U.S. military? It is kind of a buddy, buddy film. Like, like the commie and the drill sergeant are going to try to like make this impossible device. I wish they had more time together. It'd be my thing. They, again, because everything is montage, you get these scenes, but they do have great chemistry on screen that could have been explored further in a movie that decided it wanted to take more than, you know, two minutes per scene. <laughs> 
and then move on to the next. There's the Paul Newman movie. If you really want Fat Man and Little Boy, you can have some that has a horrible, horrible Oppenheimer. I will just say the actor they got was like someone that went on to basically just do cartoon voices and video game voices. And he is so terrible in that movie. I don't think you have to go to the both extremes. There's a happy middle where, yeah, a lot of this, I feel like here's a new scientist. Okay, what, what's the point of this scene? And like so many characters, there's only one scientist that really sticks out when we get to the discussion of the hydrogen bomb. Like that feels like an important character and debate going on, but there's a whole thing with Casey Affleck. I don't know. Like I'm sure that happened, but why? Let's slow down and look at each of them. What I will offer is yes, one viewing, I feel sorry for you guys. It's hard to process the whirlwind and all you can process is how crazy crazy it was, which is how people talk about it. Like to have $4 billion in the middle of the desert that had nothing. And then to create this out of nothing is crazy making. It really is. And my brother, he works in construction. So he really was helping me understand logistically what they were doing was so impossible. And the Nazis have an 18 month lead. They have Heisenberg. They have the guy that knows quantum mechanics. So they should be winning. And the only reason I really like this moment, the only reason they think they have an advantage is Hitler doesn't like Jews and every scientist working in quantum mechanics is Jewish. One of my favorite lines is like, we're going to beat Hitler because he's discounting the most important scientist. Mm hmm. Yeah. He's not going to fund them. He's not interested in them. Whereas, I mean, $4 billion in 1940s money is like That's a lot. <laughs> Oh my God, can you imagine throwing out on this whim that maybe these guys will come up with this weapon? Maybe. But again, it all started with this scene. It's actually a scene between him and Gene. And this guy runs out of a barber shop that's a co-worker. And he's read that the Europeans know how to split uranium. Like the atom that, that seemed, you know, like it's a funny moment because Oppenheimer's like writing on his chalkboard, I've proven that it's not possible. And then in the next room, Josh Hartnett's like, we've proven it's possible. Again, quantum <laughs> mechanics, the, the, the paradox. Yeah, they, they got a blip on a some kind of reader that you, you think splitting the atom is much more dramatic. No, it's just a little blip. That's the only way we could see it. Yeah. So then it becomes a question of how do we get everyone on the same page? And compartmentalization becomes this buzzword and this trap. It's part of the tension between Matt Damon and Oppenheimer is that Groves is like, you got to keep it separate. They end up having like these five different places. I think it's San Francisco, Chicago, Los Alamos, somewhere in Tennessee and somewhere I never caught. But all of these minds that are working on this one project are scattered throughout the country and Oppenheimer can't go see them because they're refusing him clearance. It's a way of trapping him at Los Alamos and keeping Groves in control that the man that's supposedly leading this can't go see four different sites. But that is a funny moment and an important moment when he he's like to get his clearance, he'll just defy it. And he'll he'll go to the football stadium where they have I don't know how much uranium like that's frightening. Can you imagine like in a major city like they just took over a football field and suddenly there's like a nuclear reactor and there's another funny line. They're like, well, the football field's no longer in use. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I can imagine the people, the community that's nearby, again, that don't know that any of this is happening. Again, that's a question for the committee. Where is the safety standards? Where is the security clearance? We will know that one of these scientists, Fuchs, 
ends up being a spy for the Russians. Like that gets said that he's, he comes in and like he's labeled British, but that was just because he was German. And in the end, he doesn't have alliance to America and sells us out. Yeah, that's something that comes around at some point in the second hour, I think, when we're jumping timelines and Robert Downey Jr. Strauss will reveal that to us, that there is a spy, that this has gotten out to Russia. And so I'm like, oh, okay, is that now? Because what is the through line here? Is this just a biopic? Here's historical event to historical event. Even then, you want to come up with some thesis of the guy and some kind of drama. And I thought they had done that, but then they, yeah, they throw another wrench in here that like, no, this actually got out. There was a spy. So now I'm like, Great, you, you've introduced 100 characters and now i got to play a guessing game. Like, i got to solve this mystery. Well, you could try. Fuchs is there. There are a few scenes where we see somebody walk off from a project and Fuchs is like, I'll do it, and like rising in the ranks. I don't know that you see the spy game there. No. It's more about the fact that if you were a manager and you can't get to your team, how frustrating that would be. And, and the excuse being used is, well, we just don't know if we trust you. And yet we trust you with all this uranium and with all of this money. It's crazy. And again, that, that was historically what they always talked about. Like Groves was this hard ass. He, you know, you can see in the recruiting process, he's yelling at people. Why would you want to work for us? Cause this is the most important damn thing ever that happened. So just get in the damn car and come with us now and Oppenheimer you know he makes the intellectual poise he's the one being like well you know like we're building a town and you can bring your family and you know this is you know not a military operation you're not going to be a soldier they play good cop and bad cop and they get a lot of good people and yeah maybe you don't notice all of them but I think you notice that there's a woman they, they make a point that Lily Hornig She's mistaken for a secretary, but she gets to join the team. That's pretty progressive. I wish she had more time. There's like three lines in the entire movie about her. Yeah, they wanted to show representation. I mean, again, that's you'd cut her otherwise. But they wanted to show that diversity and pulling from different areas is a strength. If Hitler thought that there was one master race that had all the answers and was perfect, this is why we have the edge. Because we know that diversity is what makes us stronger. But yes, you mention all the scientists. I think Alfred Einstein is uh, a famous non-participant. Yeah, people kind of know who he is. Yeah. Everyone knows him. <laughs> I thought everyone knew he didn't work on it, Arnie. You thought he had made the bomb? I'm not proud of this fact, but yes. <laughs> okay, I, I, I'm not here to shame. I just, yeah, he definitely very early on wrote the letter that got this project going, ironically. The ripple effect is, you know, it would be really unethical to make a bomb to use as a weapon. I would never do it. And they need him at a certain point. The, the interesting thing is that we have this moment where they realize this could actually destroy everything. Let's go ask Einstein. And they go water imagery. He's always by this duck pond. And they've always got to like ask, like, what do you think? Are we going to set the air on fire? And this is what Nolan said was his hook into making this movie was the fact that they could destroy the world weren't entirely sure they wouldn't push the button anyway i don't even remember this but nolan says there's a reference to this in tenet there's some line about them destroying the world you just couldn't understand it it is inaudible <laughs> i mean yeah exactly no one understood any of your dialogue in that film yeah improved here i understood every word being said so <laughs> that right there's a plus but yeah this is where nolan got his hook into the story of oppenheimer and 
What a scary thing. Don't you think that they're doing this all the time, like, with the Hadron Collider? Like, they're like, I mean, that, yeah, we could be living in an alternate reality. That could have gone wrong, and, like, this is not our timeline anymore. I mean, anytime science experiments, you know, like, Oppenheimer can just kind of glibly be, like, you can only get so far with theory. Sure, but, like, we don't want to make that mistake, right? We don't want to test the thing that's going to annihilate us. And it doesn't need to be, like, world destruction. Again, Hollywood is going through things because of science, because of AI and the problems or challenges that's presenting. Yeah. I mean, anytime we get back to Albert, I think these are good scenes. And again, what he basically says is, if you prove that this is true, you've got the guys. I'm not a mathematician. You'll figure it out. But if you prove it's true, tell the Nazis. Tell everyone. You know, his attitude is no secrecy. You need to let everyone know that this has that potential to wipe us all out. And hope that they, that they can hear that argument. Teller. Teller is the one that figures it all out. I got to give major, major props to Benji Safdie. Yes. I love him as a director. He's a great director. Yeah. Uncut gems and good time. But whenever he acts, he's just as good. And that he can do this Hungarian Edward Teller thing. I love it. I like his acting better than his movies. I'll just say that. <laughs> he's very good here. My brother remembers this. I, his older brother, five years. So I guess Teller became Mr. Wizard. He made a bunch of like kitty, I'm going to teach kids science. But not the actual Mr. Wizard. I mean, but like an equivalent. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That the man that invented the hydrogen bomb then went on to entertain kids with soap bubbles is hysterical to me. But we see that's an early tension is that Teller is like, you're right. They have these glass encasements and they're talking about one being filled with all the uranium they're using. Fat man and little boy. They're different size glasses. Well, yeah. It ends up reminding of this, but what they say is, I had a second viewing, the one is all the uranium you're using, the other is all the plutonium we're using. Oh, okay. And he's like, well, let's skip all of that. Let's use hydrogen. Now, I'm not a scientist. I don't know what that means, but everyone seems to recognize that a hydrogen bomb is a bigger explosion, a more impactful thing takes even more lives. And it's a lot easier to get hydrogen than plutonium or uranium. Yeah. Mm, okay, good point yeah. on that. Yes. Readily available. Yeah, because that's why they're filling these things so slowly, is I think they have to irradiate the plutonium and the uranium. Yeah, they're processing it. But the hydrogen is plentiful. Yeah. And again, if you're a mission, if you're a military guy and like, we got to do this yesterday, the Nazis have taken over England, you know, like then you go with hydrogen, like the, the pressure there. And they, they have a couple scenes. At one point, we see Teller about to walk. He's just like, all right, I've had it. I don't even like you. And I'm just going to walk away from this project. And this becomes a sticking point for Oppenheimer later. Did he or was he not working on the hydrogen bomb? The way this movie depicts it is it was just a concession to stop a guy from having a tantrum, right? Basically, like, I'll meet with you once a week and we'll talk about the hydrogen bomb. The way this movie characterizes it, Oppenheimer never wanted there to be a hydrogen bomb. He saw a reason for having an atomic bomb, but no reason to have a hydrogen bomb. This film won't go into the science a whole lot, but I do like how they'll explain things. Like, the atomic bomb they're working on oh it's such a big explosion where you got to go to kilotons to measure it because it's so much more powerful than dynamite and then hydrogen they got to go to megatons like it is little things like that that like 
again, shortcuts to tell me, okay, here's the stakes. Here's like, I appreciate that they have those little analogies in here because yeah, if you do a lot of formulas on the chalkboard, that's going to get boring, but you got to understand it a little bit. And Nolan does have that in the script that we do understand it enough. And I'll just go ahead and put it out there. I find arguments about, are you a communist or not? Kind of boring. Like again, you, you have radical minds. They're going to have radical theories. They're not going to tow party lines ever. So I'm not here really to debate whether Oppenheimer was red, but I am here to debate his ethics. Did we need this bomb? Should it have been invented? Should it have been dropped? Should it, the hydrogen? I mean, all of these questions should engage everyone. I mean, that's a debate. And I mean, it's sort of a debate. I almost feel like a lot of people and even this movie kind of come down on condemnation of dropping the bomb of, you know, this movie itself will say that Japan was a defeated enemy anyway, and that we didn't need to go to such extremes. Yeah, it presents both arguments because I sent a text to my, my friend group chat after I saw this. And I'm like, hey, did you guys back in high school, World War II history, did you have a whole class where the teacher just justified the atomic bomb and dropping two of them like I did? Like very conservative education. Like, yes, that was the right thing. And it was all these arguments. The Japanese w- would not quit. If we just demonstrated the bomb, we had to drop it on them. Like that is how their culture was. Like I had a whole day of, of brainwashing about why it was good. We dropped two bombs when I was in high school. And people are always going to argue about this. And I love that this movie invites all of those arguments. Arnie, you heard that this movie says that it shouldn't. What did you hear? I feel like the point of view of this film, given that the film is a lot of Oppenheimer's point of view, Oppenheimer becomes filled with guilt of this. And there are discussions and lines had that Japan was a beaten enemy anyway. And now there is there is some lines said that we would have had to go to a ground war and invade the islands and a lot of troops would have been lost. But what I hear in this movie through Oppenheimer's anti-nuke stance post Hiroshima and the lines that are said, I feel like this movie's condemning that bombing. And see, that's exactly what the committee is trying to catch him, right? They're trying to be like, you seem for it in 1945, and then in 1949, you're doing this whole pacifist thing. Here's what I will offer. I think they show us a very consistent man. I think Nolan has a very consistent idea about where Oppenheimer is always. He was, as he said to Robbie, pro-using the atomic bomb because the Nazis cannot have it. They cannot be allowed to do it. They were going, if we didn't use it on them, they were going to use it on us. And then that gets interesting because Hitler dies, right? Germany loses. And well, do we keep going on Japan? Like, And I think you see the female scientists being like, now we're the bad guys if we use this. What I hear Oppenheimer say And he has never expressed any regret about it. We drop it without warning. We put it on Japanese and we we do not tell them ahead of time we're doing it. Because there was all kinds of debates about like, do we drop it on just a military base? Drop it in the middle of nowhere and film it and just show them. (laughs) Yeah, we could see it out, out at sea. They could just look out and see on the horizon. And the belief that they come to and Oppenheimer specifically, is that they won't understand it. They won't understand the significance of this until it is used. And it's Matt Damon that says you you do it twice. Once to show the power and once to show we can do it forever. And I think Oppenheimer, when he's going through all this, what this movie is telling me is, well, he was asking 
like theoretically, like this wasn't a practical thing to him. This was just in theory, how would we do this? And later he's going to have to come to the grips with the reality. Arnie, I would say this would be a much more anti-dropping the nukes on Japan if they don't got to go James Cameron T2 and like have this gratuitous like bombing scene. But like we'll never see Japanese bodies, any of those horrors. We hear a few reports, but there's never the Japanese perspective in this of, of what it actually did. And let's hold that. That's as separate from where I'm at right now, but as super important. How they dramatize the testing and the dropping, really great stuff I want to hold on to. But just, to, just so we understand understand Oppenheimer, I think it's really important to understand that he wanted to use the bomb without warning them. You do. You scare the shit out of them because, and this is quantum theory, right? This is paradoxical. You get peace when you drop a bomb. You drop that bomb and no one ever commits war again. He will say that a lot. This is the bomb to end not just World War II, but to end all wars. Because if people can see that that is the outcome, that our annihilation is, you know, the zero-sum game, then no one will ever want to go in that direction again. And that's why he becomes the crusader later, is that you only need to do this once if you're Oppenheimer or twice if you're Matt Damon. But you don't put it in an arsenal and say, we can drop it whenever. But that's what happens at the two-hour mark is we do get the testing of the bomb. And how was this at IMAX? Is this a reason to see this at IMAX? Were the talkie scenes good in IMAX this far? I mean, I saw this on a big screen, and it's visually impressive. I love the cinematography of this film. But did IMAX enhance the explosion? No, and it should not. Because that would be immoral to fetishize the power of this. That is the wrong... You don't want a bunch of people going, wow, cool. And that was my fear. That was my absolute fear. Is like, why is this this IMAX experience? It's not meant to make us impressed. It's a big screen to remind everyone that's there, the biggest audience possible, what we're dealing with. I agree. He does not fetishize it when it goes off during this testing, but he draws attention. Like, this is, I complained a lot about his sound mixing. I love what he does with the sound here. Like, Christopher Nolan can do genius stuff with sound design at times. Like, not always. Tenet was a big problem, but the fact that all the sound drops out now, and it is, like, just look at this destructive power that's going on. And then I think, like, Killian Murphy, you could hear him breathing at times. Like, that comes up really loud in the mix, and it, it just, this almost ambient sound as you see this explosion and almost they hold off on the explosion for a bit they show the reactions of everyone first again not a scientist but apparently this is the thing there's something about the implosion effect that it actually prevents it's a silent experience there's an asynchronous and we see that in even in the early testing we'll see the explosion and then later it'll go boom and you're like oh did the foley artist fuck up no that's what it's like yeah, faster than sound. Yeah, that's sound barrier. Yeah, yeah, light faster than sound. I mean, it's like fireworks at a distance. You see them before you hear them. Yeah, but it's, again, it helps create the idea that what they're doing here is so strange. Like, this is abnormal. And yeah, this centerpiece, it's really like the middle of the movie. It is the nail biter. It's where this becomes a thriller. Overall, I would say it's more of a dramatic mystery. But here, when they're like, can they do it? Even knowing that they can watching all the obstacles, watching them build that tower, looking at that ugly sphere with all of those, you know, horrible connecting cables. And again, there's just something scary 
about the middle of this movie. This movie does horrify me when we're at this moment. And I can't say that I find this thrilling. I mean, because this is the one thing I knew. This bomb went off a train. I knew where things were going, but I was curious how would it be handled in the filming? And yes, the editing, the sound design, the practical explosion no not a real nuke but you know <laughs> miniature work and things to create a practical explosion and not cgi it i think it does give a bit of a more visceral feel to the fire and the way i'm just horrified because i'm like is everybody gonna go blind there's one guy who like leaves the bunker to go out and look and i'm like is he gonna lose his sight they're putting on sunscreen to protect from uv rays i'm like are they gonna have third degree burns the overall reaction is what i'm afraid of dennis quaid's kid is so cool he's like i'm just gonna sit in my car i'm not gonna wear glasses or nothing he's gotta blink though He's got to turn away. Yeah, yeah. I want to, you're jumping to the actual explosion, but it's about 30 minutes of like calculating, is this going to work? And there's like, you know, bad weather. Again, water, that all that imagery. Is God going to smite this? Uh, they have a deadline, you know, like Truman has to be able to tell Stalin at Potsdam that this is a possibility for them. They're meeting and they got a window. It's got to be July 15th that this is all happening. Got to be. And then there's another deadline of like, if we do this and it doesn't go off right, we won't be able to get enriched uranium to do this again in who knows how long. Yeah, about the buildup, I, I was wondering, like, is this going to be the whole film getting to the atomic bomb? Because that's what Oppenheimer is known for. All the stuff that happens after that, the more interesting stuff, I would argue, I had no idea about. But I'm like, how how do you get tension here? I don't feel that tension. Like, they'll say lots of things like the implosion test shows it fails. I'm like, I don't know what that means. You haven't explained anything or given me an analogy, at least, to understand the science there. So, like, I know history. I know it blows up. So, I will say, adding the weather, like, that is something I understand. Like, okay, there you've created some tension. But I just wanted a little bit of science. Just have a little bit of science drama in there. Because this is so much about science that I don't care about that. The fact that, okay, it's raining and that could delay it. That's something I could hold on to. If you want the science, you read it. That would be my argument. I don't need or couldn't comprehend, digest that level of what they're struggling with. Then just don't tell me about the implosion test failing because that doesn't mean anything to me. Except you said fail and now will this fail too? But I know that happened. This is real life. Jacob, the tension is again, the deadline. Yes, they can do this. Yes, I know they can do this. But can they do this in a way that is going to allow Truman to set it all in motion? Yes, yes. I know history. Yes, they do that. Yes. Okay. Those are major points of history. It, it is still scary. I, don't tell me because I know that the final girl is going to live. It's not scary when the killer is chasing her with the knife. It can still be impactful. Uh, yeah, when the explosion goes off, it is impactful. The buildup, I'm just... Okay. I'm not saying it's boring. I'm saying I don't feel a lot of tension and dramatic buildup. That is my problem for two hours of this film. I'm like, where's the drama and tension? I know the history and the finally the third hour, that's all going to kick in. But for me, it is the spectacle. Like that is the reason to see this explosion. It's not to see the drama building up to how it happened. Let me kind of come down the middle on this is I agree with Jacob that I didn't find a whole lot of tension even when it was raining. I thought it was a good visual. I like the visual of them assembling the bomb with those geometric shapes that become the round cylinder and things like that to show the timeline and things. But I'm not feeling a lot of tension 
in regards to it because I do know the history. Yeah, being spoiled in the story does undercut a little bit of the tension here, but that doesn't mean it's not effective. And I think that the buildup is working and the explosion feels like the climax of this film. The fact that we have another hour after the explosion, Jacob, you seem to think that's your best hour, and that's where I'm going to start thinking, maybe because I'm not following who all the characters are in just one viewing, that things get a little bit muddy. All right, so to process everything I heard, Arnie thinks the final hour is where it slows down, and Jacob thinks it gets dramatically interesting, and both of you are relatively, uh, you're absorbing the trinity test as an observer as a theorist like <laughs> yes uh, by the numbers you're just telling me what happens and i'm not saying Stuart, that i'm not enjoying this except for that score that will not shut up but yeah there are funny lines there's good dialogue great acting there's all those things it, to me and this is always a problem with nolan is the emotional like do i feel all of this like i understand like i'm reading a historical text but i don't feel it like i want to feel the danger i want to feel the conflict of building this weapon of mass destruction and i just i don't feel that and the reason why i do is because it's shrouded in this debate because we've seen them go to the officials and we have that senator that's just like yeah we got a list of 12 cities we're thinking about but oh i'm gonna take kyoto off because my wife and i honeymooned there (laughs) (laughs) he honeymooned no that's what i'm saying those are great moments yes i agree but again it's the dread it's the growing dread of watching the scientists that are so glad that they're close to doing what they need to and then realizing what it's actually going to be used for. We watch Schindler's List knowing all those people are going to be free. It doesn't change the despair. I didn't know anything about Schindler's List going in. I didn't know what Schindler's List was. I knew there was World War II and Nazis and Jews and concentration camps. Okay, let me simplify this. If you come to a historical project Knowing the history, you can always make the case that there's no tension because you know outcomes. But I don't think that that is what the filmmaker needs to do. The filmmaker needs to put you in the mindset and perspective of the people that were in that moment, in that second. And I feel it. When Killian Murphy says these things are hard on your heart before that thing goes off, agreed. That, like, all of this buildup is devastating. And and I agree with you. There are biopics that I really enjoy. Like when Michael Fassbender played Steve Jobs, like they take three moments in Steve Jobs' lives. Michael Fassbender is not even going to cover up his foreign accent and try to be American in that. Like (laughs) there's not a lot of realism, like Seth Rogen, like he's not really trying to play the character in real life. Like, but I get what the emotional, the the feeling, all, all of that kind of stuff in here. I don't know because there's so many scientists and so many debates and so many, it, it all gets watered down for me. You talk about water in this film. It just gets watered down. I, I, Again, edit and just to emphasize things more. No, it's a chorus. You want more and more voices. Again, the tuning up, the violins, that it's suddenly the the strings are like at this point. And then, yes, that when we actually get to the explosion, total and complete silence. All we hear is Oppenheimer's breath. I I thought that was a really new way of doing that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And then he, of course, refrain of that line, the only dialogue we get during the explosion is the I am become death destroyer of worlds being said again. Yeah, which he didn't say there. No, no. 
<laughs> is he thinking about banging Florence Pugh at that point? Is that why he's saying that line? Well, no, yeah, they, they do. They do. They actually, in that montage, as it's exploding, we see a clot of hair swirling in water, which was her hair after she drowned herself in the tub. So again, he's thinking, if I kill one woman, how many more am I going to kill? And I love the way they handle Hiroshima. It's so difficult. You don't want to underscore it. You don't want to soften it. You don't want to minimize it. We need to know that it's gruesome and horrifying. But Oppenheimer wasn't there to see it. And we don't want to turn it into IMAX spectacle. So what they have decided is we will show Oppenheimer the hero riding into the town, standing under a basketball hoop of all things, and trying to pump up the crowd about things he doesn't even really believe about, boy, I wish we had dropped it on Germany. And the sound mix particularly will tell us what's happening in Hiroshima. And I 100% agree with you here. This is what I'm saying. Edit, like, give me things to focus on. Like, this moment, it's great. This tells me so much more about Oppenheimer's conflict with the bomb than all the build-up stuff as he goes in to give this speech. And yeah, he's got to do this pandering, jingoistic nationalism. I wish we could have done this to the Nazis. And like, you could see it in Killian Murphy's face. Like, he doesn't mm-hmm. believe this. He's doing this because, like we've been told, he's this great organizer. Maybe not manager, but organizer and he gets people excited and he's he's just going back to that mode here and yeah i think this great moment i think it's well edited too i don't know if nolan just wanted to underline the moment or if he didn't trust killian murphy to completely sell it just through acting i think killian is great in the scene but all of the shaking and the again the sound effects non-score in the background the stomping of the feet the shaking of the background the fact that it's almost like Oppenheimer is in the midst of his own explosion right there, even though he's giving the speech. I just want to credit the editing. I hesitate because of how much of a montage it is, but when they do things like this and these kind of use of special effects to underscore moments, I'll just go ahead and say I think Nolan is at the top of his craft here. I really do. I I agree with that. I've laid down a lot of criticisms, but I'm not going to deny that there are not moments of brilliance here. And yes, this is something only someone with the artistic ambition of a Christopher Nolan would bring to it. And a mystery gets solved, too. You mentioned the stamping of the feet. We've heard this chugging sound for the first 90 minutes and wondered, I just thought it was a train approaching or something. You know, there's been so many scenes of people talking on trains. Oh, that must be a chugging locomotive. No. Yeah, they can't take planes. They're not safe. They got to take the train everywhere. This is the symbol, the audio symbol of the rabid, warmongering American public. Give it to me. We want the bomb. We want to blow it all up. We want to get them. That stomp, stomp, stomp. We see it in the crowd and that he hears all of that rah, rah, rah go silent and that they get dusted, and like he's even leaving, he's seeing people sick from radiation sickness and and all of that. Like It just tells you where he's at as opposed to everybody else. And of course, this is a very, very famous, well-documented exchange when he's asked to go talk to Truman. Just to touch upon how 
they don't depict the Japanese in this. It was something I, I wouldn't say struggled, but I really thought about. Because why wouldn't she do that if this is about that sympathy, maybe? Maybe this was wrong in Oppenheimer's point of view. Why wouldn't you show that destruction? But I do think it works showing it from people that would relate more to Oppenheimer. Like, all of us, none of us saw the actual destruction. And, like, a lot of people have opinions that that was a good thing. They've never seen the destruction. I do think it's helpful in just showing this as more of the conflict that us as Westerners separated from that war would have perceived this by not seeing all of that death, just hearing about it in the paper, seeing people cheer about it in the streets. No, no, I love the fact, I mean, it's it's an irony, right? Here's the man that invented this, and when they pack all of that stuff up, it's like, yeah, we'll let you know. Yeah. And he's just left by the phone. He finds out, like everybody else, it's Truman on the radio saying, yeah, it was a big explosion, and you just have to imagine what that means. You cannot cut to Japan and have something outside of his perspective. I agree. That wouldn't make any sense. This is a movie about how he experienced it. He heard that news and everyone else heard, yay, 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 stomp your feet. And he saw... I'm killing the whole world. See, and don't you take that as a level of regret? I mean, that's what I'm seeing here. No. Because it's through his point of view. And maybe it's one of the paradoxes he's discussing with the physics about how both can be true. But I feel like, especially the way his speech is given in front of all the scientists at Los Alamos, that the movie is telling me he is suffering regret for helping usher this in. No, he is not suffering regret. This had to happen. We had to scare them and make this so that no one would ever have war again. He feels bad about it. He has guilt and blood on his hands, but he doesn't regret dropping that bomb. But he regrets the idea that they're going to pack it all up, take it away from him, and he will have no say in how it's used from that. It becomes something in the arsenal of the United States is something he is vehemently opposed to and never saw happening. And that's why I find this third hour so much more interesting because it is his reaction. And I, yeah, I wouldn't say regret. It's not bad that he made the bomb, but he wants people to share this information. He, so you know, if everyone has it, then it's no good to anyone. Like he, he has a very much more strategic approach with how he wants to deal with it. That tells me he doesn't regret making this thing, but he doesn't want it regulated and monitored and controlled. Yeah. And it starts with the president. I mean, this is a very well-documented... Is this for real? Oh, yeah. No, I've read about this in so many different ways. I knew about this for years that he went to Truman. Here's Oppenheimer on the cover of Time magazine going to Truman and saying, I have blood on my hands. I did not, however, know it was going to be betrayed by Gary Oldman. I didn't realize that was Gary Oldman. I didn't either. Who is killing it. <laughs> killing I'm like, can we get a whole movie of Truman with Gary Oldman? He is so good in this scene. Got to be better than when he did Churchill. I agree. <laughs> uh, people love that Churchill. I'm like, his Truman's better. Do they? Well, he won the Oscar, Jacob. Yes. Well, because he put on a fat suit. It's not a good movie. I don't know that everyone would reduce it to that, but yes. It is. <laughs> I'm not a fan. I'll leave it at that. But I am a huge fan of how this scene is done because I played differently in my mind. It was, it is funny, but again, you also see the contempt for him. You feel when it's like you're leaving Los Alamos, 
We need to build this up. What do you want to do with it? Give it back to the Indians. I mean, I'm rolling. I'm laughing. Yes. No, this is good. And Truman's like, you want to give Los Alamos to the Native Americans? And, and it's so like, again, you talk about that contempt when Oppenheimer says, I have blood on my hands. And Truman just pulls out this handkerchief and is like, ah, it's on my hands. Here you go. Yeah, that was such a great actor flourish. I feel like Gary came out with that, with the idea like, you wipe it off, but you don't have blood in your hands. And they try to make this distinction because you didn't drop the bomb. I did. You didn't kill anybody. I did. You invented something great that the world can use, and I'm the one that killed people. But I took that almost as Truman's ego. It's not like he's assuaging Oppenheimer of guilt. He's like, this is my triumph. Yeah, it is a moment of ego. I think he's like, I'm the president. I make these decisions. You're this lowly scientist. Thank you for your weapon. Now go away. Don't bug me. In all the stuff I've consumed, I, I agree, and the scene might leave you with that impression. In all the things I've consumed, Truman feels very bad about it. That does not come across in the film. No. He is not proud of that moment, but he resented the idea that this crybaby scientist was going to say, I did this. You didn't do shit. I'm the one that decides things. It's on me, and this is my record. So don't give me that shit. Don't tell me the things I've got to live with are your pain. And then we get the development that this is not... What I knew about Oppenheimer, I knew he was a major factor in creating the atomic bomb. Did he just die after that? I don't know. I never heard about him. But yeah, we are going to see this campaign to discredit him because he's going to start speaking out and he's going to want to make this a big issue. And we saw earlier, I, I figured this is why you put that scene in with Casey Affleck, like this general that will make people disappear. And maybe that was to set this up because this is, as we get into this third act, is about making Oppenheimer go away. And this is why I feel this is more interesting. This is where you get the real dramatic stuff because the government doesn't like him speaking out. And we already kind of knew this. Again, it started with the idea that old Oppenheimer is on trial having to answer yeah. for things that he did. But uh, we didn't maybe know the context. Depending on how fluent you are on history, you are curious about how innocent or guilty he might be of these crimes. But by this point in the movie, they've done something really interesting. As we've talked about... There have been, let's just call it the Killian Murphy color scenes and the Robert Downey Jr. black and white scenes. And we've had this scene at a table where Robert Downey Jr. is in a tuxedo and it's been black and white for most of the movie because that is Strauss telling the congressional committee what we were trying to do after we realized the Soviets had the bomb. This is all the nuclear people in 1948 going, uh-oh, we thought, you know, Russia would never have it. Truman's like, they'll never have the bomb. Three years later, they have the bomb. What are we going to do about it? We've seen it largely characterized in the ways that Strauss would like it. But it does turn color. We do have a moment right here in the middle. It's sort of the two worlds catch up with each other. And suddenly we see... Oppenheimer walk away from that table when they want to call into question his credentials and his patriotism, his loyalty. And one of the things I love about th this table scene, just cinematic language and to keep me engaged while all these boring debates go on for the normal, like, summer blockbuster popcorn movie goer. It, like, there is this humor. They keep moving this plan around. Like, someone will talk and there's a centerpiece on the table. They move it to the side and they move it to the other side. And eventually they just get rid of the thing. I just, I like staging like that. It could just be a boring debate around a table, but Nolan keeps it interesting. Mm-hmm. And again, it is an interesting question that, again, this is the inconsistency that the panel is trying to understand. 
1945, you run into a, you know, basketball court and say, kill all the Germans with it, and now you don't want to develop the hydrogen bomb? Why is that? Is it because you were selling it to the communists? Is it because you were against this country is the suspicions that they're trying to get at? That, like, your position changed because your patriotism changed. And at this table, it's worth me pointing out that this is where he runs into William Borden, David Dasnalchian, the villain of our day. I feel like every other week. I mean, he was a bad guy in the Dark Knight, the Suicide Squad. Like, he's showing up in everything these days. I feel like he has the same haircut here that he had Mm. in the Dark Knight, though. So when I saw him, I immediately went, hey, it's that guy from the Dark Knight. Oh, wait, he's also Polka Dot Man and all these other things. Yes. He is the one that, talk about ripple effects. He's the one that really starts this chain of events that strips Oppenheimer of everything. He's here at this table. Oppenheimer is the guy still. He's still a cool celebrity. And we see Borden walk up to him and be like, it's almost like a a fanboy fantasy of like, can we imagine your bomb on this rocket that I saw fired when I was fighting in World War II? And to Oppenheimer, that's horrifying. Borden is the one that Strauss will use to write the thing that poisons everyone against Oppenheimer. So it begins here. And that's why sometimes this is a black and white scene and sometimes a color scene is sometimes we're seeing, we're seeing Killian Murphy, you know, politicizing the hydrogen bomb and saying, don't do it. And sometimes we're seeing it as, okay, we got to kill this guy. This is not going to be something that we can allow. So here's how it works. Borden, you're going to get a bunch of classified documents We'll sneak it through that little weasel that we all hated when you were at Los Alamos. And then you're going to just write up something for J. Edgar Hoover. And that will cause a committee, this committee that we've been watching, really, even though it's a color scene, it's in the shadows. No reporter gets to see what happens here. And this is where we will character assassinate in quiet and take away all his security clearance. And yeah, basically send him to the duck pond with Einstein. And this is great. Like, I guess it's based on history, so I don't know if I could credit Nolan, but the fact that, yeah, we're going to use a committee, usually we'll see Strauss's committee hearing. That's a big public thing. But the fact, yeah, we're going to throw you in this broom closet, basically, Mm -hmm. with a few tables, everyone's squished in there. We're going to give you, like, the worst lawyer. This was a surprise, but Cone Blair playing his lawyer, usually just a character actor, Blue Ruin, Green Mm. Room, like, usually indie films. I'm like, I noticed him right away, but, like, we're going to give you this lawyer and not share anything with them he doesn't get any transcripts like this happened historically but it's great like seeing it depicted here and it's interesting in contrast they're arguing the same things that yeah we'll, we'll see that like yeah Oppenheimer and his lawyer are like you're not giving me a list of witnesses you're not giving me all the information and you know in the shadows Robert Downey Jr. is laughing but when Strauss is sitting before the congressional thing he's got the same complaints They won't tell him the witnesses. Yeah, yeah. A lot of irony. And I like the recontextualizing of the first two hours here when you realize that Oppenheimer is in a hearing. The stakes seem rather muddied because I don't know exactly what revoking his clearance with the Atomic Energy Commission achieves. It's about discrediting him. It's taking his platform away for speaking out against this. But they're specifically not wanting him to be martyred. So they're they're not taking his platform away publicly. They're just taking away security clearance. That doesn't stop him from... But he's not going to get invited to speak at all these government 
ceremonies and everything now. Yeah, if you wanted to martyr somebody, you hold something the way Strauss is holding it, with all the people there taking pictures and JFK sitting on the panel and all of that. Then suddenly that becomes a national debate. Should we do this to Oppenheimer? But you put him in a small room and have a a bunch of stoolies who know what their job is uh, to put him down. Yes, what it is is what we heard at that I call it the tuxedo table. What we heard at the tuxedo table was that Oppenheimer said, what FDR wanted, what I want, is a global consensus. Now, this may be naive, and we could look at Oppenheimer as like, this wouldn't be practical, but this is why he gets a pass for being the father of the atomic bomb, if you're to give him one. It's that we've used it twice, we've shown the world, you never do it again, and all atomic energy will be handled through the UN and through politics, diplomacy. We will not create weapons with it, and we will trust that our enemies will do the same. And you can see the brass. All the military people are like, screw that. This is ours. We invented it. We have the right to use it, and we are going to build more of it. We're going to build an even bigger bomb. We're going to build Teller's bomb and make a hydrogen bomb. And Teller is one of the people that testifies against Oppenheimer in that trial. He is doing it not because he dislikes him, but because he wants his policy, his bomb, to go forward. So by quieting this guy, by I hear you ask, Taking away his credentials, what does that do? It means that they can go forward and create the new nuclear arsenal we have today. And you talk about that moment with Teller and the, the secret hearing, a moment I love because it says so much about Oppenheimer that Teller will sit there testifying against him and then Oppenheimer will shake his hand yeah. and his wife not happy about that, like really upset. Like he's like, no, he's a scientist. Like this shows me that conflict between theory and practicality, science and, and how it's going to, you know, going to be eventually used. And he doesn't maybe quite grasp that, or that's a constant struggle with him. He's like, well, he's also a scientist. And so I should be friendly on that level, even though he's stabbed me in the back. And again, I just want to tell the, the story that's not in this movie. As a bully child, his classmates would beat him and he would get up and not tell on them and go sit in class with them. So he is just a custom to that treatment. Yeah, it could be, again, a neurodivergency, something there too, where you just don't know how to react in those situations. That That's a common thing, social awareness. But to my other point, in addition to asking about what removing the clearance does, is I did like how it kind of shakes up the film at the beginning of the second hour, because the bomb goes off at exactly the two hour mark. And then you've got the shake up where you realize these hearings are happening. But is this third hour fully justified? Do we need this entire third hour? And Jacob, I think you and I are going to be on different ends on this one because you said it's your favorite stuff. Yeah, I don't need the first two hours. Edit that stuff down. Keep all this. And I'm like, for the first two hours, I am leaning forward literally in my seat and I am taken on this journey through Oppenheimer's life. But once it starts becoming about hearings and the betrayals and the semi-betrayals where Matt Damon feels bad, but says he wouldn't give him the clearance based upon today's standards and things, it just feels like this goes on a bit too long. And that making Strauss a bad guy felt like it was coming out of nowhere. Did this movie need a bad guy? It is a third act twist, I feel like. It, it is a little M. Night. I like it. I don't even know that a lot of the Strauss stuff of his you know, failed congressional hearing is in American Prometheus. It is Nolan saying this needs to be a big part of the story. So if you don't like it, this is on Nolan. 
he he felt like this movie needed to contrast these two Jewish men who worked in atomic energy and were put on trial for it. And Arnie, I'll say it again. My favorite stuff in The Aviator was the hearings, the trials, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> again, I think it's helpful to see the different ways that they're treated and there's just lots yeah. of ironies and all of that. And my curiosity to both of you is when did you know that Robert Downey Jr. was the villain? Not till they revealed it. Well, when did they reveal it? Well, they give you the hint with the Albert Einstein scene that tells you, oh, something's up with this guy. Maybe. But that's very early on. I kind of forget about him. You think so? Because when I saw that scene, I thought Oppenheimer had insulted Einstein. I didn't think it had anything to do with Robert Downey Jr. And so it got, I was very confused when later Strauss said he started on his very first day at Princeton turning all the scientists against me, starting with Einstein. It didn't look that way to me. It kept changing. That pond scene looks different from the different vantage points. It's like Rashomon. It's like, <laughs> at first I thought that this arrogant guy had insulted Einstein. And then I thought, well, he was tipped off not to trust Robert Downey Jr. And, you know, we'll get an end to it. I saw it the same way you did, Stuart, as I felt like Einstein wasn't even thinking about Robert Downey Jr. when he walked past. I didn't take it as a snub. I honestly thought he was maybe snubbing Oppenheimer. Like he was upset with Oppenheimer. Yes, it, it changes. And it will come out to play that Einstein wasn't even thinking about Strauss. Yeah, yeah, we'll talk about it because it's a beautiful way to end this movie. I didn't really know that Strauss was a capital V villain until, yeah, that reveal that he's the one who leaked the documents that got to Hoover. And, and then I'm like, oh, okay, this is a bad guy, bad guy. Yeah, the big talky scene where he starts taking credit for it. The scene where his aide is like, I've been working so hard on this, but you've been working ahead of me behind the scenes. Yeah, Han Solo. <laughs> oh, that's young Han Solo. That's Aaron Edenreich. Yes. Or however you pronounce it. Yeah, I want to offer that. of Like, we've been given this character to, to be attached to. And so he's going to be indignant when we're supposed to be indignant. I think is correct. Is that when fake Han Solo suddenly is like, wait a minute. Like, it sounds like you were the one that held the knife and, and did all of these things. Yeah, how did you know? What, what was it? Time Magazine makes a quote and he knew that quote that was going to be made. And that's the big reveal. Mm-hmm. And again, this is a character that is so, it's paradoxical. Because on one hand, he's talking, you know, all about how you want real power. You don't go into the light. You stay in the shadows. I've been able to be in the shadows and pull all these strings and, you know, gotten my way. But now here he is. It wasn't enough for him. He was so jealous of the fame that Oppenheimer got that he's like, I have to be on the cover of Time magazine, too. And I have to be, you know, like legitimized by Congress and all in this hearing. And yeah, that, that he needs to step into the light. He's a victim of his own prophecy, right? He said, don't ever do it. And that's the reason why Strauss goes down. Otherwise, he'd have gotten away with it. And thank God for Rami Malek, who is, the, given the role of being the scientist, that, that decide to slay him. Who's in this movie for some reason? Like, it was a surprise when he showed up. <laughs> he showed up earlier for just a brief scene, and I went, oh yeah, I read he was in this film, so I guess this is his entry into the film. And then he disappears again, and I'm like, <laughs> why did you get Rami Malek for that role? And then he shows up here to give this great speech at the end, and I see why you get Rami Malek is because he 
he's a really good actor and he's able to give this great speech with its twists and turns, but I like Rami Malek so much, I just want more of him. It's a small but very pivotal character in a large cast. You would lose this if you didn't give it to a Oscar-winning actor. It doesn't need to be Rami Malek, but, but because it's Rami Malek... It makes you pay attention. Yeah, when we're in the Chicago football stadium and we see him goofing around in the background, we go, what the hell is he doing? Like, isn't he, like, a star? Why is he playing an extra? Did he just show up on the set and is in the background there as a cameo? <laughs> What's going on with him? Yeah, what what gets said is that he is part of the Chicago crew. When, when we talk about the way that this was all compartmentalized, he was there in Chicago, and Strauss believes the Chicago people are with him. Anybody that was at Los Alamos is under Oppenheimer and they'll destroy me. So he's, again, always like, who are they calling? What, what is it going to be? He's actually glad when it's Hill. He thinks, oh, good, Hill's my guy. And that's why it's doubly rewarding to watch Hill be like, no, all the scientists agree this man should be nowhere near government. And it's around this time where we're going to get all these speeches to try to save Oppenheimer in that small committee with him. Kitty's finally going to get to testify. And we saw she dropped her purse earlier and they she had a flask in there. And, you know, we know her history. Like, where is she going to go? And we had that really wowser scene, I think, to wake up people that don't like the science where they're talking about his affairs. Yeah. And suddenly Killian Murphy he's naked with Florence Pugh right there on the table. <laughs> Such a great scene, yeah. That that she's imagining <laughs> them having their affair right there in front of her. And look, I gotta say, Emily Blunt, I feel like she is an underrated actress. Like, she, she doesn't get the big roles like a Margot Robbie always, but whatever she appears in, like, I always forget about her, and then she kills it with her performance in this scene. Like, look, this is your Academy Awards little snippet that you show, but it's so good. Like, oh, yeah, I was a communist 16 years ago no 17 no actually 18 years ago and like she just rips them apart it's it's what you want in this kind of film I don't like your phrase yeah I do really like it. I I love Florence Pugh in this film, and I actually thought, would she get supporting actress? And then Emily Blunt comes in, and I'm like... Yeah, she gives a speech. <laughs> and she's not big enough to be best actress, so she'll get best supporting actress, I think, out of this. At least nominated. We'll talk about Oscar predictions at the end here, but yes, I agree with both of you here in that Kitty has been mostly tabled, and she's been in the background drinking and resentful. Why don't you fight? Why am I hooked to a man that's just going to sit there and let them take everything from my life? And here's her moment. He gives her the floor. He's never going to fight the way that she is, but she's going to go in there and go toe to toe. And yeah, it's very satisfying. I love the line because his lawyer is like, why would you put Kitty in there? And he says, only a fool or an adolescent presumes to know someone else's relationship and you are neither. And I just, I absolutely love that line. It's yeah. a really uh, impactful line to say there's been a lot we've seen of dysfunction in their relationship. You wouldn't expect Kitty to have claws. <laughs> and she comes out clawing. Yeah, I, she's, I mean, no one liked her. It's, historically speaking, everyone thought she was very difficult to be around but that could be a use when you're standing on trial and you have someone a pacifist like Oppenheimer you need someone that's going to go for the throat it's not enough because they have recordings right in the end they call back Casey Affleck and we didn't talk about it but it's a 
I'll minimize it because it's it's one of the communist debates. But the Chevalier affair. There's this whole thing about how he, his friend who does all the babysitting, might have requested that he pass on materials, and was that the beginnings of him being a spy? Is a thing that historians like to debate a lot when they talk about Oppenheimer. This would be the movie this Chevalier affair, and the fact that he lied and said, oh, it was somebody else on my team, when in fact it was him and Chevalier, and he just didn't want to name Chevalier. And Matt Damon gets, I don't know, it, it's a mixed message, right? Like, he gets to say, no, I wouldn't hire him, but at the same time, he's like, he's not responsible for Fuchs, and he's a good patriot, and by these standards, and I think this is really interesting, yeah. by these standards... None of them would have passed. The climate of the 1950s is such, they are so worried about communism that was not a concern in 1942 that I wouldn't have been able to do my job. Yeah, because th there's not a whole lot of emphasis on McCarthy in, in this, but it, his name is dropped and they kind of make fun of him. Like, oh yeah, this guy's doing these big, you know, public executions of communists. Well, that's why we want to do this small one of Oppenheimer and just silently get rid of him. But yeah, it, it feels like you could have made this a whole Red Scare thing. Like that was the 50s. So in the 30s, like, no, the Cold War wasn't a thing. So you would hire all these people that might be communist or they just might be pro-workers' rights, <laughs> pro-labor. And and yeah, the, the climate has changed. So I do love that last line from Damon's character. Is like, I wouldn't have hired any of these people under these guidelines. Yeah. Despite Kitty, despite him, despite anyone else that they could bring, I think they bring in Robbie too. I love that Josh Hartnett was almost going to testify against him and then fake sick. And, you know, in the end, they have recordings. And God knows that that's what Hoover lived off of, was secret recordings, Nixon, all of that stuff, uh, you know, that would define the 50s and beyond is why the, the committee ultimately does take his clearance and we see him go home. I thought it was a really interesting exchange when the, Kitty's by the fence and she turns to her husband and says, did you think that you would be forgiven if they let you destroy yourself? Meaning she almost thinks that he didn't fight because he wanted to look sympathetic. That if you beat me up, you won't hold it against me that I gave us the means to kill us all. Which kind of means, did she forgive him? Like, is she mad at him that she stayed with him for the rest of his life? I don't know that she ever forgave him. Is meaningless. <laughs> I mean, people stay together in bad marriages for a lot of reasons. No, no, no. It's not meaningless. It's paradoxical. It's quantum physics. It's the idea that I know that I, my life and my career was something else, but I stood with you. You know, she gets a small victory. When he actually gets the much later, LBJ is going to give him some little award. She's going to be there standing next to him and she is not going to shake Teller's hand. He shook Teller's hand, but she is not going to shake Teller's hand or forgive any of those people for hurting them. I think she's an interesting character that this movie, it's a disservice they didn't give her a little bit more. I agree. She'll be supporting actress, not leading actress. And it goes the same way for Robert Downey Jr. And I love this moment. I mean, it's it's such a crowd-baiting cheer moment. But he's <laughs> sitting there. The reporters are outside his office. He's prepped for it. He's been told that every confirmation hearing has gone this way, and it's a formality. But then Rami Malek did this last-minute thing, and who knows? And when 
fake Han Solo comes in there is like, yep, uh, they're against you. Downey's really great in this movie. I want to underline the fact that we've seen him be smarmy in a lot of films. He does it in a Robert Downey Jr. way. He's actually acting here. He's not just being himself. And he's great. Oh, yeah. He is great here. I agree. He's, again... Another actor who gets lost in the character somewhat. I still see him as old Robert Downey Jr., but his performance is a better Robert Downey Jr. performance than I've seen since possibly Chaplin. I mean, he really gets into a character and his body language, his vocal inflection. I almost feel like he's like, see, I can be more than Tony Stark. I've been Tony Stark for like a dozen years and I can be more than that. Watch me act. But he proves himself. You know, that could go really wrong. He's working without a net and I think it pulls it off. And it's good casting too because we think of him as Tony Stark so we wouldn't want to think of him as the villain and that's why it might be a surprise when it comes. I think that played part of it too. It's just, oh, it's Robert Downey Jr. He is Iron Man these days. Like even, yeah, I understand he plays different roles but he's got that reputation now as like the ultimate good guy. But you know... Fake Han Solo is going to rub it in. He opens the door and he's really, as he's going out there to be assassinated by the press for not getting the commerce secretary position because of a bunch of scientists. We have this little Washington, D.C. toady tell him, you know, Einstein probably wasn't even talking about you. And I love. It's so good. I love that this movie goes back. I really didn't think they would do it. But how beautiful. That was the mystery of the film for me, Stuart, is what was said. Yeah, I know. And yet it's because it's not known. You know, most historical movies, most biopics wouldn't take that risk. But we're going to go back to the duck pond. But before we go back, like during this speech, the one thing that did bug me, because I love that revelation, like maybe they didn't say anything about you. I did not like when they're like, yes, there are three senators that changed their votes. One of them, uh, someone by the name of uh, John F. Kennedy. I don't know. Maybe you've heard of him. It just uh, if... they didn't need to say that. Yeah, I know. That's what bugged me. I knew it. I knew. I'm like, oh, it was Kennedy, huh? They said the junior senator from Massachusetts. And that's all I needed to hear. Yeah. I knew who they meant. The fact that they went ahead and said Kennedy I don't know the talkative snoring lady next to me when she did wake up finally she was talking at the screen for a lot of the film and she went oh him so maybe somebody needed it but I didn't need it it helped her and here's what I would say have we looked into Strauss I watched the Oliver Stone movie about who killed JFK that's what did come to mind when they dropped that I'm like wait is there some (laughs) speculation that Strauss was involved now I got a new theory of like oh because again Strauss is vindictive That's the whole reason why he went down. He's petty. I guess that's why they dropped the name is so redraw those connections and wonder. And it's also worth pointing out when Oppenheimer gets that award from LBJ, that was Kennedy had selected him. It was a month after the assassination that he gets that award. And so, yeah, it would have been JFK giving him the forgiveness prize because JFK was on his side. But back to that conversation with Einstein and Oppenheimer. Yeah. Speaking of awards. Yeah. (laughs) Speaking of what getting awards means. Boy, does Einstein have a winning moment here. Oof. Yeah, it's so good. The actor who plays Einstein, I don't even know who it is. Tom Conti. He used to work in the 80s. I haven't seen him in decades. He's doing a really good job here. My thought in the trailer was that doesn't look like Einstein, but it really does have a good resemblance when I saw it in the film. And yeah, this is the heart of the film, I feel, is Einstein. The few times when he shows up and actually has dialogue scenes is where the movie really pivots. And here at the end, 
we're going to get a moment that I would say is as good of an ending note as when Leonardo DiCaprio spins that top and then we cut away. Here we're going to get an emotional spinning of what Oppenheimer may really have done. Yeah, not only that, but the ripple effect. Keep in mind, it didn't start with Oppenheimer. He rejected the idea that he invented anything. He was at the center of it. It was a chain reaction. And if it had a starting place, quantum theory began with Einstein. And then it left him behind. And I just love the moment of where he's like, I remember you giving me that prize and it wasn't for me. You gave me an award to say I was done. And you and your friends were now seizing the moment. And one day they're going to give an award to you. Ouch. And they had. Again, we had just seen that in parallel. And then that's when Oppenheimer. <laughs> then the nukes go off. Yeah, drops the bomb, <laughs> yes, the bomb about, again, where he stands. It's consistent in my mind. I do not believe that he regrets dropping the bomb on Hiroshima. I think he stands by that. I think he feels very badly about it. But he saw it as a, ne a necessary evil to protect the world from a chain of events that could be avoided through diplomacy. But in fact, now the cynical older man realizes diplomacy is not going to stop the chain reaction. We will destroy ourselves. A, a chain reaction that he can't take back. Yeah. Yeah. We will destroy ourselves. Call this Pandora's box. Like it does not go back in once it's released. Yeah. And that foot stamping again, all of this, we have that Mount Olympus shot again and suddenly missiles are flying out through the clouds. Yeah. So good. Yeah. Just great stuff. Mm hmm. Yeah. Visuals are tremendous here, but the ending note is really, really powerful. Burning the world, right? Wasn't that a line from uh, Dark Knight? Some people just want to burn the world. Just want to see the world mm -hmm. burn, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're, here we are. We're those people watching the globe go up. I'll say that this end shot, I don't think anybody in my audience was waiting for the end where Sam Jackson shows up to recruit Oppenheimer to join the <laughs> Avengers or anything. But my audience just sat in their seat stunned. Even the talkative snoring lady was just sitting there like, I think every single person in the theater was a little bit shaken by that moment, by that ending, and had to really take a moment to reflect before they all milled really silently to the exit. Or go to, into Barbie and forget it all. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we forget it all, Jacob Stewart, how strongly do you recommend Oppenheimer? I mean, I've seen where the conversation went. I don't have any questions if you do. Jacob. <laughs> Interesting you don't have questions because I had a lot of complaints for the first two hours that I, I felt I vocalized that really annoyed me. But thinking about this film, thinking about now playing, I think we started a chain reaction. Before I knew what this film was about, on our Facebook group, someone posted a thing like, name artistic douchebaggery in cinema that you hate. And like, I feel like that, that's a term. Like it, they use that term because we popularized it on Aviator. Arnie specifically, let's give it the real props. <laughs> it was a collaborative thing. That term would have never come out if we didn't all have that conversation. I got to take responsibility too. I guess. Talking about the Aviator, in fact. That's what I learned from this film. I had a part in that. <laughs> Ripple effect. Mm-hmm. It was a ripple. Yeah, it's, it is. And I, I restart reading the comments. I'm like, I, I like all these films. I like artistic douchebaggery at times. Like some of my favorite films this year, Wes Anderson's Asteroid City, Brandon Cronenberg's Infinity Pool, Ari Aster's Bo is Afraid, artistic douchebaggery on display. Like I, I make no apologies for those. Like, yeah, those are films. Like just expect 
that to happen and you either go with it or not. I feel Christopher Nolan, I get more critical with him because he wants to be a big blockbuster filmmaker too, but I appreciate that he has these artistic flourishes. I want that in cinema. I love when people take risks and challenge me. And sometimes that works and sometimes that makes it disastrous. And, and so I get critical of Nolan because yes, you're, you're saying you're going to save cinema and you're going to bring art to it as well. Like do that really great. And so, yeah, the first two hours of this film, I had a real struggle with. I've talked about that with the score, with just so much stuff going on. I'm trying to distill it and figure out what's important, what's to focus on, what's the drama, what's the tension here. And then I get that in the third act. And, and so while I was annoyed for a couple of hours of this film, and there's definitely things I liked. I don't want to say I hated two hours of a three-hour film. I enjoyed things, but I had major complaints. But like when this starts clicking together and the pieces start coming together, I think this is fantastic. The acting... I hesitate to say the cinematography because it's a lot of sitting in rooms but when he does get to those visual flares the ending here it's amazing the way he constructed this script to to have that call back to Einstein at the end like it gives power to those moments so if you're the kind of person you're like I don't like biopics I don't want to sit for a three-hour history lesson then not recommend do not see this because this is not going to be a, a transformative biopic for you like it, it's not going to work but look I went to this one by myself because my wife and kids went to a concert they were having probably a whole lot more fun than me and so but they all wanted to see this like my girls love that HBO miniseries Chernobyl like that is one of their favorite things ever they like this kind of history and so they're like we want to see that my wife wanted to see it so I will be watching this again and I, I guess it's Nolan so maybe I'll have to wait more than 28 days to get it on streaming but eventually it's going to come out. I will watch it again, and I'm not dreading that. I actually look forward to a second viewing where I, I put a lot of my assumptions and, and complaints to challenge and see if it, it works better a second time. I'm predicting it will, Jacob. I'm just going to offer. I feel a second viewing will help you with what you saw as complaint. Yeah, but a lot of people don't see movies twice. You're you're going to see this one once, and I think on one viewing, th there's definitely opportunities. I I would adjust to this film, but acting like stuff like that I am not going to complain about like Killian Murphy Emily Blunt Florence Pugh Robert Downey Jr. they all bring it they're all nailing it all, all the minor actors too Matt Damon's good in, he's not a minor actor but his role is like Casey Affleck I think he's been canceled but I was glad to see him back I've always liked him more than Ben Affleck as far as acting goes kind of an Ocean's Eleven reunion with him and Damon yeah, yeah, it did. Yes. There are struggles I had with this and, and I don't want to downplay that because I, I think there are legitimate complaints here, but as a three hour film, yeah, I was never bored. I was able to hold my bladder in this entire film and not have to jump out in the middle. I wasn't looking for an excuse to even do that because I wanted to experience this film. And so, yeah, it's a recommend. It's a, it's a stronger recommend. I, I don't know. Best movie of the year. Actors, supporting actors, definitely. I don't know. I'll have to see it that second time, which I'll do in a few months when it comes out on streaming, probably. But yes, a, a solid recommend for Oppenheimer. Stuart. Yeah. So one of the reasons why Citizen Kane became the standard for biopics, like movies that tell the story about a person's life, is because it's the one that says you can never really know a person, right? A reporter's hired to give this profile, talks to a bunch of different people, and hears about a different Kane every time he does. Yet the movie ends up telling you the real one. It's going to take that artistic risk of saying, I know that we can't know, but I'm going to give you the sled. 
I'm going to make that jump. And this movie does that. Why it is one of the best biopics I've ever seen is because it takes all the complicated ideas about who Oppenheimer is, his morals, should he have done it. Everyone gets a voice in that. But in the end, with that Einstein scene, we see a very consistent figure. I see someone who has true guilt, blood on his hands, proud of his accomplishments, and yet still haunted by what he did, how the chain reaction of that will be used. And it doesn't feel broken or scattered or contradictory at all. And maybe that's two viewings and doing some of the research that I did for this. But I feel like Nolan specifically needs a lot of praise for this script and for finding the love of a creator. You know, I think he personally identified with someone that created something that killed. If you think about Dark Knight Rises, I think that might have been where this whole notion of artistic guilt and creation came from. And it's just, it's infused in the movie and we've talked about it in all the ways. I have no technical problems with the movie. I heard Jacob saying he didn't like some of those choices. I love them all. I think top to bottom acting to whoever brought the catering did an amazing <laughs> job on this film. Okay, now you're giving it too much. You don't even know what the catering was like. All right, fair. <laughs> I thought it was a beautiful movie about a complicated individual that helped me understand and connect with him, which is all you can really ask from a, a biopic. And so I, I would rank this among Nolan's best work. And yeah, I, if I see a movie better than this this year, it'll be a great year. Highest of recommends. And I mean... What can I say? I came into this with my arms crossed. This wasn't a movie made for me. Wasn't what I was excited about seeing. So a not recommend from me wouldn't be a shock because this isn't my taste. But this film freaking won me over. I couldn't believe it that three hours flew past and I was really critical of the runtime. I felt like, you know, I've got a lot going on. Three hours becomes a four-hour commitment minimum when you include trailers. Travel, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. And again, about this guy I didn't know, starring Killian Murphy, an actor I like, but not one that's going to get my butt in a seat, you know? I like him when I see him and stuff. But I called him a douchebag at the beginning of the podcast, but Nolan is a maestro here. I agree with what Stuart said. Every aspect of this with the editing, I disagree with Jacob about the use of score. The montage got a little bit exhausting, but I don't know of a better way to cover so much ground in honestly so short a time. A different director either would have had to have made cuts to how much information is given or made this a four-hour film and given us hopefully an intermission in the middle. But when I was thinking about this, when the bomb went off and I was just so into this film, I'm like, this is the best film I've seen all year. And this is a five star film. Wow. I'm so this is not the aviator. I really did not see it going this way. I thought I could be a potentially alone on this in, in liking this movie, but we all really liked it. Yeah. That's a surprise. And then there was a third hour. Uh oh. <laughs> you spoke oh. too soon, Stuart. All right. Never mind. You still might get your not recommend. <laughs> <laughs> and I like. The performance is so much across the board in this movie, but Downey really owns that third hour, whereas everybody else is just a wonderful troop in the first two hours. But Downey in that third hour really rises. And 
I just wasn't as into the trial stuff is all I can say. And I wish I understood more about Strauss and I wish I understood more about David Hill. You know, I feel like those characters were really glossed over and I saw Rami Malek in the background, but I never really caught his affiliation. I never saw him as coming out of the woodwork in order to torpedo Strauss. And so, like you said about Jacob Stewart, this is one that may even get better on repeat viewings. But for one viewing, it knocked it down from a five-star film to a four-star film, but still absolutely the best I've seen this year. It's been kind of a mixed bag year, Mm -hmm. and I enjoyed the hell out of this film, and I will be seeing it again in theaters. I'm going to be taking my wife Marjorie to go see this again. Wow. I And Barbie, too, I imagine. Are you going to do the double feature? <laughs> Not opening weekend. We may still see Barbie yet this weekend and then go see Oppenheimer <laughs> in a couple weeks. I mean, Nolan threw his cock out and is like, I'm taking IMAX for three weeks. This is getting three weeks of IMAX? It's usually two. <laughs> He's got three weeks of IMAX, and that's why Mission Impossible had to open so early on, like a Monday, was to try to get some IMAX screenings in there. So I may go after the IMAX crowds lighten up so I can see this in its full frame as it was filmed IMAX. But yeah, I'll be seeing this again in theaters. It's a very solid recommend. And Nolan, you proved me wrong. I thought you were done. I thought you were over. I thought your sound mixes had gone too far up your own asshole, and... I really was writing off Nolan and not wanting to see him. He's back in my mind. And so I'm curious and anxious for whatever he does next. I will not be going in crossed arms the way I did this one. It is three really good recommends for Oppenheimer. And in the end, I am glad we reviewed this instead of Barbie. You haven't seen Barbie yet. That that might be even more amazing. Yeah, you know what? We might do Barbie at some point, but there's no room on the schedule. Sorry, guys. No show this year. There'll be a Barbie too, so just hold your hats. Both movies are making incredible money. As of this recording, Barbie is looking to be the highest opener of the year at over 155 million. Mm-hmm. But Oppenheimer is going to be one of the highest R-rated original films, looking at 77 million, beaten only by Passion of the Christ as far as non-franchise R-rated films go. That's pretty big. Wait, Barbie's forecast to be bigger than Super Mario Bros? Yeah, I hope so. It looks like it's opening bigger. Wow. Will it have the legs? I didn't realize this, but Mario's gone over half a billion domestic. Just domestic, yeah. It's it's a billion worldwide. So, yeah, I didn't realize it was that huge. Will Barbie have legs? The doll does, but... Yeah. She's got heels. <laughs> she's got legs. Yeah, she's got very good legs. But, yeah, just one last note on Nolan. I agree. It's, you know, after what, his worst film, Tenet, to to come back in this is very... He hasn't hit this upper echelon. I can't rank his films. I haven't gone back to watch all of them again. But I would put it in that top tier of Memento, The Dark Knight, Inception, and this. I would agree this is top tier, Nolan. Yeah, I would definitely say I like all three that you mentioned more than this one because we're talking some of my, like, all-time favorite films right there that I can't get enough of. But this one, I'd say... The top of tier two, Nolan. How's that? Yeah, I, I, I separate Nolan into three tiers, and this is the middle tier, Interstellar, Dunkirk. It, it's on that level for me. Oof, Interstellar. That's a shank. I like that <laughs> film. <laughs> uh, you must have liked it more than I did. Okay. Yeah, I liked it more than you for sure. Okay. All right. I get it. All I remember about Interstellar is Murph. I know. I know. <laughs> Murph, you got to help me, Murph. 
Yeah. I remember the bad. I remember the bad and maybe I need to go back and see what was good about it because there was good stuff. But the Oscars, I'll go ahead and prognosticate. This will be the one to get him director. Nolan has never won director. He's got it. And probably script too. Anything else? Who knows? But obviously it'll be up for everything. RDJ, I think, I, I feel is pretty uh, locked in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it would be nice to see him support. He'll get nominated. But win? Who knows, right? Yeah, I can't ever predict wins. I never even try. But I see script, picture, director, best actor, best supporting actor, and best supporting actress noms across the board for this. There's just no woman big enough to cinch the last category of best actress. Which is all ironic because Nolan is saying in this movie, if you give someone an award, you're essentially killing them <laughs> and putting them out to pasture. I mean, that it does feel like it's like Scorsese. Oh, we'll give it to you for The Departed. We've given you a reward. We don't have to pay attention to you anymore. Yeah, but but and yet he remains viable. We will be covering him this year as well. But we want to give an award or at least a salute to someone that has been with us for 10 years and has delivered the payload, who's performed the miracle week after week. Heath is the editor who has been with us the longest. We had editors before him and editors have joined after him, specifically Santiago is with us still, but Heath joined us 10 years ago, Mm -hmm. July of 2013, and he has been the only one with the fortitude to stick with editing this long it is unsung editing is not fun so that's a, that's a big deal no we're very long-winded and rambling <laughs> if you listen to the credits i usually try to give us a pity line for the editors you know like for next week's the green mile because i really for the editing job of that i felt like john coffee i'm tired boss that's how <laughs> i feel about editing yeah <laughs> And so we don't, I think, on the show, praise them enough. We always give them credit at the end. But Heath, thank you for all you've done. So many shows and always on time, always great quality. There's a spotlight on Heath on our website. If you want to read more about Heath and know more about him as a person and as an editor, head to nowplayingpodcast.com. But Heath, you're editing this show And so we salute you on 10 years. And more importantly, we thank you sincerely for 10 years. I mean this when I say without editors, now playing wouldn't continue because there was a period where I was the only editor and Mm -hmm. that could not keep up. Yeah. Two shows a week. No way. Without people to help with the editing. No, absolutely not. When I was the only editor, we were doing one show a week and then a few bonus shows on Fridays. And now we're doing basically two shows a week every week. Thank you so much, Heath, for your service here. It has been life-saving in a literal sense because, yeah, I I probably would have killed myself if I was the only (laughs) editor, I'll be honest. I'm not even joking with that. I'm not being hyperbolic. Or just kill the podcast. You don't have to go that far. (laughs) And instead of that, you're going to watch 47 Meters Down 2 this Friday for Gold Level Donors. Yes, our Gold Level series continues. We have three more films, 47 Meters Down 2, and then two The Meg films. Somebody was asking on our Facebook group, are we reviewing The Meg 2? Yes, we are for Gold Level Donors. $25 or more through our patron programs or a direct donation via PayPal. You get to hear so many shark tales. Th- that Will Smith movie? No. Never. Yes, not a review of Shark Tales. <laughs> never. <but> shark stories. <laughs> I did watch Shark Tales, and it will never happen. I can't wait to hear your review of that, Stuart. <laughs> yeah. 
But uh, if you just join us next week, next Tuesday, we got another story about a mercurial figure with great power unleashes the force of gods. The Green Mile, Arnie, you talked about it. This is a Stephen King pickup that got Best Picture nominations. Yep, that is going to be on our Totally Free Tuesday next week. So thank you to everyone who has listened to this review. Thank you for joining us for Now Playing. And until next time, try not to blow up the world. Thank you for listening to this Now Playing Podcast movie review of Oppenheimer. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. The world will remember this day. Help us spread the word about this show by leaving a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your podcast store of choice. Theory will take you only so far. Want more reviews like this one? In the archive section of NowPlayingPodcast.com, you'll find more than 1,000 in-depth movie reviews from our panel of hosts. What were you guys doing in Los Alamos? On our site, you can hear reviews for every installment in the world's biggest film franchises, including the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Star Wars, Spider-Man, Batman, X-Men, James Bond, Middle-Earth, Jurassic Park, Fast and Furious, and Transformers. All America's industrial might and scientific innovation connected here. And come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com next Tuesday for another all-new movie review podcast. Truman needs to know what's next. What's next? Support from listeners like you keeps Now Playing Podcast on the air. This is a matter of life and death. You can donate directly by tapping the support button at NowPlayingPodcast.com. There's a chance when we push that button, we destroy the world. Chances are near zero. And you can join our crowdfunding campaign for early access to new episodes, exclusive reviews, and bonus reviews available for a one-time contribution. And the world is not prepared. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. You're the great improviser, but this you can't do in your head. Associate produced by Jason Latham. And how many people are in these uh, open discussions? Now Playing is edited by Heath and Arnie. Keep everyone there until it's done. Now Playing credits read by Brock. We don't let scientists bring their families. We'll never get the best. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the views of Venganza Media Incorporated. I don't know if we can be trusted, but I know the Nazis can't. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with, and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. They won't fear it until they understand it. And they won't understand it until they've used it. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of and may not be used without the express written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2023. 
and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. I can perform this miracle. But he doesn't stay in Europe. He goes back to Mexico. That's what he's telling the committee. In the end, New Mexico, not Mexico. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll reset. Yeah. But yeah, I like this. Anytime we get back to Alfred, I think all these scenes are great. The fact that, you know, he basically just says, You mean Albert? You said Alfred, I think. Yeah, 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 Alfred. <laughs> damn. I'm, I'm in the Batman movie. Yes. <laughs>